0: Arrakis, Dune, wasteland of the Empire, and the most valuable planet in the universe. Because it is here, and only here, where Spice is found, the Spice. Without it there is no commerce in the Empire, there is no civilization. Arrakis, Dune, home of the Spice. Greatest treasure in the universe. And he who controls it controls our destiny. Welcome to Now Playing's Dune retrospective series. Do we have Worm Sign? Who should we have Worm Sign, the likes of which even God has never seen? Part of the Now Playing David Lynch review series. Remember, walk without rhythm and we won't attract the worm. Hosted by Stuart. My greatest student and my greatest disappointment. Jacob. I can kill with a word. And his word shall carry death eternal. And Arnie.
1: men admire his courage. It will take more than courage to survive what's
0: coming. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue looking at all of David Lynch's films. Try looking into that place where you dare not look. You will find me there staring back at you. And join Stuart at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Frank Herbert's Dune novels. They know a storm is coming. Time to let them know I'm here. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. It's not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I'm permitted to pass over me and through me. Listener discretion is advised. May the hand of God be with you. May the hand of God be with us all, Duncan.
1: Today we're discussing Dune, starring Kyle McLaughlin, Virginia Madsen, Francesca Annis, Brad Dourif, Kenneth McMillan, Sean Young, and Sting, directed by David Lynch. This is Arnie, and the podcaster has awakened!
2: (laughs) Stewart in LA. And this is the host whose name is a killing word. I'm going to say it anyway. Jacob. Ah! Oof!
1: Get out of my
3: mind!
2: Done. Good night. I'm out of here. of the
3: podcast early. Sorry, listeners, you're all dead, too.
1: I knew Jacob was in The Weirding Way. I, just weird.
3: <laughs> we're definitely in The Weirding Way. We are three podcasts into The Weirding Way, and we're into the biggest movie, at least budget-wise, that David Lynch has ever tackled. Although I hear the budget for the new season of Twin Peaks is even bigger.
1: Dude yes this is the movie he turned down return of the jedi for bad choice dude they both had sandy swarms but bad choice <laughs> you think it's a bad choice i mean i understand his point lynch made the
3: presumption that if he signed on to star wars that he would be working for lucas and and telling another man's vision what he got in this deal was to do whatever he wanted to this book
1: yeah but, if you have a choice between working for Lucas and Lucasfilm and working with ILM, or working for Dino De Laurentiis' family, I think you go with Lucas. Uh, this is a $45 million dollar
3: budget, one of the biggest ever greenlit, and the De Laurentiis family had greenlit Fellini films, they had made Italian classic films that Lynch was a fan of, and although he knew that their reputation could be hard, they actually had a very good working relationship. and. Despite the rumors you might have heard about this movie and, and fighting in the editing room, uh, they were friends and worked together again.
2: Well, I, yeah, I'm going to have a lot of questions about this film because this is the first time I've actually been able to get through it because I had to for this podcast. I remember as a kid, whenever it was out on cable or VHS, like I remember like I had cousins who were like, oh, let's watch Dune, it's like Star Wars. This ain't like Star Wars. (laughs) Like, this was like watch 10 minutes of nope. At eight years old, not watching Dune. I did try to watch it a few years ago, it was on TV. And we'll be talking about the different cuts. It ended up being the TV cut. I fell asleep with the first 10 minutes of this film. And I'll talk about why when we get into the different cuts. But yeah, for me, this it's a film. Again, I know a lot of the language of this film. The suits, the nose plugs, the worms, the spice, all that stuff. Just because of pop culture. But it's one I've never been able to get through until I had to force myself for now playing.
1: I agree on the pop culture stuff. I was completely just out. Tim Burton stole
2: so much of this for Beetlejuice.
1: Absolutely. But I was thinking Fat Boy Slim's Walk Without Rhythm and You Won't Attract the Worm. I didn't <laughs> realize what he was referencing. I just thought, well, Fat Boy Slim has really crazy lyrics usually. So I have seen this movie. This was my third time watching it.
2: All the way through. You've seen this three times all the way through. All beginning to
1: end. Yes. The very wow. first time was in 1987. It was on video Star Trek The Next Generation had started, and I wanted to see everything all the Star Trek actors had done. And I was reading Starlog magazine and all these interviews with Patrick Stewart, and everything they kept referencing was his sci-fi past in Dune, and they showed him in some suits and things, and I'm like, well, I want to see this other Patrick Stewart movie. I had no idea who Kyle MacLachlan was, I had no idea who Frank Herbert was, but I knew Patrick Stewart was in this movie. And then he disappeared from this fucking movie. And then he showed back up in this movie. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I just remember not being able to follow it. But I remembered enough of it that, Jacob, when we did the Riddick trilogy, I saw the Chronicles of Riddick. And something inside me went, you mofos are ripping off Dune. So I actually, for that review, went back and watched Dune (laughs) just so I could call out all the ways Chronicles of Riddick ripped it off. And it is egregious. Hmm. Yet Chronicles of Riddick is slightly more coherent. So advantage Vin Diesel. And then I still couldn't really follow the story. And now here I am just a couple years later watching it again. But always the theatrical cut, never that TV thing. I'm big on Dune. I've I've seen this movie countless times. I can't tell you how many times
3: I've seen bits and pieces of it on cable, long before I ever knew who David Lynch was. Yes, I think like a lot of people, I just heard that it was a failed attempt to rip off Star Wars. And so, yeah, as a kid, I just remember feeling like it was such a failure. It was so strange and different and not Star Wars. But I was always fascinated by bits and pieces of it. And sometimes I just heckled it because there's just such weirdness in it that it's easy to mock. But... Then after I discovered Twin Peaks, I did go on a big Lynch kick in the early 90s, came back to it and, and looked at it again. And each time I always found more to appreciate. I've read the book A couple times and decided when we were going to do this David Lynch retrospective, I was all in. I was going to watch the original theatrical cut. I was going to watch the extended cut that they finally made available on DVD, oh, about a decade ago. And I was going to go through the book series of which I've only read the first book. But I've read it many times throughout my life. I think the first time I read it was in the 80s when I was just trying to make sense of the movie that made no sense. But I feel very versed in Doom.
2: Good for you for getting through that book because I tried to read the wiki of the book just to try to make sense of this film. I couldn't even (laughs) get through that. Look, I've gone on the record, ironically, going back to that Chronicles of Riddick show, Arnie. I went on record, I don't like D&D movies. Like, that's what I'll call this, where you have all these different tribes and factions.
1: But are not you the fan on Lord of the Rings? Yeah, but
2: I grew up with that. So I, I guess, but it's not something I seek out. If I didn't grow up with Lord of the Rings, probably wouldn't be a fan of it because I just, it's hard for me to get into all this stuff. And, but I went in optimistic this time because, okay, David Lynch watched a couple of movies of his two weeks in a row. I'm starting to get his grammar of film. So I, I was excited to, to approach this as an adult. There's no way. I'll just say right now, not recommend for eight-year-olds who want to see a Star Wars ripoff. <laughs>
3: I think we all find that lesson very, yes, very early in life you realize
1: this is not Star Wars. Oh yeah, and I was going in hoping for Star Trek and it was neither. (laughs) Either of you read the book then?
2: I have not. Like I said, I tried to read the plot summary on wiki and I gave up about halfway through. Okay.
1: And I haven't, I have considered it. I actually got a chance to interview Kevin J. Anderson who is one of the current writers of the dune sequels that are being written after frank herbert's death and i was talking to him and when i interviewed him it was about his star wars novels but i wanted to research his other stuff and this dune stuff kind of sounded interesting and i'm like well the movie's so horrible that maybe the books would help me to understand that movie i've now i I had seen once at that point Maybe it would help me make sense of it. Maybe I'll want to read all these mini sequels that other people have, but it's a daunting undertaking. So no, I've never read a page of it. I didn't even read the wiki. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the Books and Nachos on it.
3: They teach college classes on that book. I had a professor that like, you know, he was bringing up all sorts of issues about power and control and giving us things like Machiavelli's The Prince and all of that. And he wanted us to read Dune too. I mean, he saw it very much as a text about power and and how you control people. It, there if there's an ecology message there's so many things that dune is about. That adapting it into a movie You're bound to leave something out Something won't make the transition Even in a 4 hour 6 hour, 10 hour, 12 hour cut Which it almost was This book has been tackled For 19 years before it finally Came to the screens, it was first published In 1965 and a lot of people Took a crack at it, the producer of Planet of the Apes, Roger Corman But probably most famously (laughs) the, The most famous artist to tackle And fail had to be Alejandro Jodorowsky who they made a documentary about
2: yeah ironically I've seen a documentary about this film before I've seen this film and that's more because of my fascination with Jodorowsky like Arnie, talk about a movie you never won on your podcast. We could talk about The Holy Mountain, which is probably... Forget about Eraserhead. That is the strangest thing I've seen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he really is
3: the king of midnight movies. He directed the first midnight movie. The first movie to ever get a wave of fans to go see it every Saturday at midnight in New York was El Topo. And that movie just became for hippies in the early 70s just like a
1: movement. And yeah,
3: it's way stranger than Eraserhead.
1: I may want to see it. I don't necessarily want to see it want to review it
3: yeah and so you know i think doom was always going to be trippy i think they were always looking for someone that had the instincts to get the weirdness of the source material and Yodorowski had a lineup that was to die for
2: yeah my favorite is, is salvador dolly making what a million dollars an hour <laughs>
3: A million dollars for his screen time, not for the time that he showed up on set, but for every minute of film that he would appear. They were hoping (laughs) to get it done in six minutes. But, yeah, he was going to get an astronomical sum. It may not have been a million, but it was a lot. And it was exactly that. I mean, imagine a movie in which H.R. Giger is designing the Harkonnen world with Orson Welles as the Baron and Mick Jagger as Fade and Gloria Swanson, the old silent movie star, as the Reverend Mother and Pink Floyd doing the music and Dan O'Bannon, the future screenwriter of Alien, doing all the special effects. It was like a who's who of who was cool in the 70s. And a lot of that pre-production work was put into a book and highly designed Mobius. It was highly influential and some people would have you believe that it influenced almost all of the movies that came afterwards, the documentary. It has a very interesting theory that if Dune had beaten Star Wars two theaters, it would have changed our generation entirely. We would look at the science fiction genre itself in a different way because we wouldn't expect entertainment. We would expect enlightenment. I don't know if I buy it, but I think it is a very fascinating documentary. If you're interested in who else might have worked with Dune, definitely check out Yodorovsky's Dune.
2: And apparently, I mean, he did work with Mobius to put out the Inkle comic book. It's a series of graphic novels which supposedly just outline what he would have done with this Dune story. I don't know how that's not just plagiarism, but apparently it's different enough that if you want to find out what he would have done, there are those graphic novels.
3: There's there's even talk now that they may make it an animated movie, that the, it's just feasible to do uh, what Yodorowski wanted in a more reasonable budget. I mean, the reason why it got canceled, they were building sets, they were ready to go, people had signed contracts and were in outfits. But they just couldn't, every time they thought they had a budget, it would double, and so eventually Hollywood was where they went to try and get the last of the completion funds, and every studio wanted to see it, and no studio wanted to fund it. So that shut down in 1976, and the rights went to Dino De Laurentiis, who had been riding high on his King Kong remake, and first went to Ridley Scott. And H.R. Giger, they was going to be their encore to Alien and they worked and worked and worked on it and could just never get a script right and from what I hear, Ridley Scott's budget was even much higher than what Lynch had to work with. It would have been an extravagant movie, the most expensive movie of all time, if he had had his vision. And so Dino finally had to put the kibosh on that, and they had to find somebody else. And it was his daughter who co-produced the movie that saw Elephant Man and said, this is the up-and-coming IT director that we need to use for his out-there vision. And Lynch had no passion for it, necessarily. He was trying to get Ronnie Rocket made, if you remember.
2: Still.
3: (laughs) That is, he had that deal set up. Francis Ford Coppola had all the funds for him. They were going to make it. Then Coppola's company went bust. They made a musical with Tom Waits. Imagine that, but that wasn't a big hit. A show tunes musical with gravelly voice Tom Waits music and Terry Garr and Raul Julia, one from the heart, big flop. It basically cost Coppola his studio. And so there was no money for poor David Lynch's passion project. And so he started looking at what's out there for me. Selling out? He looked ins- at- <laughs> Yeah, no, he uses that word. I mean, I don't think it has to be that ugly, but yeah, w- what will they let me do? And not only was he looking at Jedi, but he had the, first copy of Red Dragon. He might have been the first one to bring Hannibal Lecter to the screen.
2: Wow, that would have certainly been a trip. I I did read that, yeah, he didn't know what Dune was about when he took the job. He hadn't read it yet, and Yet yeah, he has a credit here for the screenplay.
3: Yep, it, it is his script. He originally went to the guys that wrote Elephant Man. They had ideas that he just wasn't jiving with, and the producers weren't jiving with, and so they were eventually let go. But he spent about a year developing the script. He spent four years of his life on Dune. So you can say it's a sellout picture, but he earned his money. I mean, four years of your life, yeah, that's quite... an. Endeavor to take. And so, yeah, for a year of it, he was like up in the Oregon farm of Frank Herbert, just kind of working out ideas. From what I understand, Herbert had a lot of involvement with the script, but did not take screenplay credit. And in fact, I ordered used on Amazon the Making of Dune book that came out when the movie first came out. And it was. turns out it was autographed by Frank Herbert, who took the point of not only writing his name, but when it got to the part, he wrote it above the credits of the movie, when it got to the part that it said, based on the book by, he also struck that out. <laughs> he did not want to say that his name was involved in this. So I think he was very passionate about the script. But when he saw this movie, he definitely didn't feel like it was his book.
2: Yeah, I'm going to, throughout this, wonder whose movie is this? Is it Lynch's film? Is it Herbert's? Like, what is the studio? What is the auteur?
1: Here's what I have read in multiple places. And Stuart, you've done all this research, so tell me how right or wrong this is. Now, I know what an assembly cut is, and that's not really a length of a movie. But they did put together an assembly cut of this, and it was four hours, but... When you took out all the extra stuff, this was four hours with no effect shots, but they were looking at like a three hour and 15 minute completed runtime after they did the effects and everything. Two and a half hours
3: is what they were shooting for.
1: That's what they were shooting for, but when they actually filmed, I heard that they got, they were looking at 315 and since they wanted a two hour movie... Lynch had to sit there and excise stuff and do a lot of reshoots and add a lot of voiceover and combine scenes and make new scenes that just shorten everything up. And so it's not like this was hacked up in the cutting room so much as you said they worked together, that Dino and Lynch worked together to make a two hour movie. It ended up 215. But it's at that point not Lynch's vision. It, his vision was a three hour and 15 minute movie for which effects were never done and some stuff may not even have been filmed.
3: Yeah, we could talk about it as we go through the movies. The specific things that they just scrapped. There are things in the book they just didn't do and they rewrote in a way that allowed them to do in one scene what they would have done probably in six or seven scenes. There was a lot of that. And yes, there was a lot of reorganization of scenes and voiceover, what have you.
2: Thank goodness Ridley Scott wasn't here because of the amount of voiceover. we know how that turned out with Blade Runner.
3: Yeah, Exactly. And that was the movie he made instead of Dune. But I think it's fair to say, as someone that has read the book and seen this movie multiple times, uh, this is pretty close to the book And it really does bear a lot of the things that Herbert had in the book to the point where I feel like you have to read the book in order to understand that because they work through so many of these concepts really, really fast. And Lynch has his own spin with it. But he said, I'm a man for hire. I'm working for these producers. He did not see this as a personal passion project. He wanted to deliver the movie that they wanted. And I think what he walked away feeling was he compromised too much by agreeing that eventually it could be turned into two hours and 17 minutes when, yeah, three hours and 17 minutes would have served what he made better. I think he walked away learning the lesson that no matter what I do from now on, I get final cut because it doesn't mean as much if you make a movie and then don't get to have that final say. They can change whatever you did and and take it away. But that said, I feel like this is very much a Lynch movie. I mean, we're going to see a lot of familiar things that we've seen before and we'll see again.
1: And you're covering these books over at Books and Nachos. So, for those who want to know all about the books, we'll be able to join you over there. I'm looking forward to them, especially the sequels. I mean, mm,
3: that's the ones I don't know. And and Lynch was signed on to that. He had already written part 2 was going to film 2 and 3 in 85, 86 back to back. They were going to make that trilogy for sure. And I think the expectation—it costs forty million. Of course, it was going to make two hundred million and be a big blockbuster. And they had all the merchandise. And yes, there were action figures, including those worms, which they would have done better selling as sex toys than as children <laughs> toys. Oh no! I don't. I remember the figures. I don't remember the worms. Oh my god! I just. I'm going to have to look that up. it give you some <laughs> ideas if you're an adult.
1: I'll just say it that way. Are you saying like a, f- a fleshlight type of thing? or I mean, do we really have to? I'm not <laughs> going to tell you what you can do with it. Just
2: Google, Artie. Just Google.
3: But figure out what it looks like. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious from the movie. It was very obvious to the special effects technicians that were doing the puppetry <laughs> what the hell they were playing with. But yeah, I, I even remember there was like children's parties, plates and yeah, lunch boxes, <laughs> the whole thing. They really did think that this was going to be and counted and needed it for it to be huge. And no, when it finally did open in December 14th, 1984, it was not huge. It made about $30 million at the box office here, an untold amount internationally, and probably lost $30 million all in total for De Laurentiis. A bomb for sure, but not one of the biggest. I mean, Cotton Club opened the same day and bombed worse.
2: Hearing that, I feel like its reputation is much worse than what it actually did at the box office. Like, this always seems to be like one of those notorious bombs when you you think about box
3: office failures.
1: Yeah, I, I hear the same thing as I hear this mentioned in the same breath as Ishtar and.
3: To lose 30 million would hurt really bad, I would think. But yeah, to keep perspective on this, today's blockbusters lose three times that. Lone Ranger probably lost 70 or 80 million. So it's not one of the worst of all time by any means. But I think when you're expecting to have the beginnings of a franchise that will win Oscars and change audiences and sell a lot of toys and all of that to do what it did, is to be embarrassed. And I think it did cost Dino De Laurentiis his reputation. He had to sell off a lot of his Italian studio, and yeah, just wasn't the same producer. He never was as lavish again.
1: I remember seeing some of those toys in the clearance aisle when I looked up the cards. It had a very striking memory for me because I was buying a lot of toys in 84 and 85 and Star Wars still, and I saw these cards. I looked them up on eBay, though. My lord, these figures... Go for more money. Because this movie is such the bomb that it is, I would not expect Fayo to go for $86 on a damaged card. And I'm looking at one here of Stilgar for $225. Sadly, I can't find any of the Space Worm. Oh, here it is. Sixty-two dollars. Buy it now, loose.
2: Very loose. Ah, making sure to clean that thing. (laughs) Who knows what's been going on with it?
3: Yeah, but you know, I think like anything, bomb at the time, but cult item now. And I think that this movie definitely, its reputation has changed over time. That people, there's a big enthusiastic base for this film and universal pictures did eventually release a dvd with the expanded cut that they originally made for television as a two-night event and promised uh, i think people tuned in because they they thought longer would finally explain all the things that seemed shortchanged in the movie and i've seen both we can talk about what it might explain and what might never make sense but i think in order to do that arnie you have to get through the plot
1: good luck Jesus Christ! There's so much of it. Do you want to erase her head? We can. We could just <laughs> walk through. No, no. I think that for listeners who haven't seen Dune in a long time, or who have never seen Dune, let me take this at a ten thousand foot level.
2: Appropriate since it's the year 10,191. thousand one
1: ninety one. I'm gonna skip over so many subplots, <laughs> so many characters. But let me set up this universe, if nothing else.
2: Joseph Campbell, Messiah complex there.
1: Moses, throw it in a blender. (laughs) But it is the year 10,191, and we're focusing on a space empire. In that empire are two feuding houses. House Harkonnen, led by the floating, pustule-covered Baron Vladimir Harkonnen, and House Artreides, the house I think we're supposed to root for because it has our hero in it. But I don't know why they're heroic. They're not covered in boils. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It is led by the popular Duke Leto Atreides, played by Jürgen Pranchnow. The Empire is ruled by Emperor Shaddam IV, who's worried that Duke's popularity is a threat to his rule. More, the Spacing Guild is concerned about the Duke's son, Paul, played by Kyle MacLachlan. Well, the Space Guild's worried about him, and it's been declared the Duke was only to have a daughter who could marry the son of the House Harkonnen, but with his concubine, the Duke has a male heir. So there's this complicated plot to kill all of House Atreides, and it involves the Emperor giving them the rule of the planet Arrakis. It's a barren, hostile world colloquially called Dune, but it's the only planet in the galaxy where you can mine spice— It's a drug that opens your consciousness. Imagine LSD that also lets you travel through space. That's pretty much what this is. So House Atreides conquers the planet from House Harkonnen, but it's a trap. There are traitors inside Atreides who succeed in killing the Duke and destroying the house, and House Harkonnen regains control of Arrakis. But Paul and his mother escaped into the planet where they're accepted by the Fremen, the indigenous people of Arrakis. Are you following me on all these proper nouns? I don't think you are, but I'm trying. (laughs) I'm following you. You're doing a good job. They allow Paul and his mother to stay if they teach them the weirding way of combat, which is using sounds to create death. (laughs) Basically what Stuart does on every Marvel podcast. So Paul agrees if the Fremen help him to disrupt the Harkonnen spicing operations and avenge his father. To the Fremen, Paul takes the name Muad'Dib. Muad'Dib. They talk about jihad, he's Muad'Dib, and there's there's something in there. I
2: stopped writing down names by this point in
1: the <laughs> <laughs> All right, here it gets really nuts though.
2: He's going to be Paul the entire time I talk about him.
1: Well, more it's believed Muad'Dib is the prophesized Kwisatz Haderach. <laughs>
2: I thought you were staying at 10,000 <laughs> feet, man. You're you're falling. Pull up.
3: I was waiting for it. Quitsac Hatterach, give a dog a bone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the Quitsat Hatterach can use the weirding way without a weapon and will have the power to overthrow the emperor. And it's the product of genetic breeding. I'll let Stuart talk about that. But... Muad'Dib's plan eventually works, and the Emperor personally comes to Arrakis to find out why spice operations are disrupted. The Fremen stage an attack, and Paul's sister, who was born on Arrakis, kills Baron Harkonnen while the Fremen capture the Emperor. The Muad'Dib then proves his power by making it rain on Arrakis, as he is worshipped as the Kwisatz Hatarach, and credits roll.
3: Very good. I wanted to say, maybe listeners didn't follow that, but that was a really good distillation of a very, very dense, complicated plot, which in and of itself is a movie plot that has distilled an even more complex, labyrinthian, 500-page novel.
1: What I realized writing that plot summary is, I now know why Lucas got the inspiration for episode one, and why he got all the f- hate, all this base guilds, and houses, and mining operations i'm like oh this is totally nemoidian all over again and blockades (laughs) and things i we don't understand why they're happening and more important they're not important it's called lore it's you know it's the kinds of things
3: that unifies a universe to make it feel like you could tell millions of stories in it
2: and here's the thing this is going to start off very lynchian we got another three movies in a row floating heads in space We got one here talking to us to give us exposition. My favorite part is like this. I guess what this is the Duke's daughter or something. Daughter. I don't know why she's telling us this.
3: It's like Trump. It may be his wife and his daughter.
1: I'm not sure. (laughs) Virginia Madsen was sexy when she was young.
2: I have no idea why she's telling us this exposition. But I'm following along, you know, we're way in the future, there's this thing but Spice.
1: Oh, I know exactly why she's telling us this exposition, Jacob, because the Yellow Scroll had already been taken, <laughs> so they had to find another way to set up a universe.
3: No, Arnie, this book came out before Star Wars and I'm telling you, Lucas took many ideas
1: from Star Wars from that book, so you can say Dune's a ripoff, but who ripped off who? Did the book start with this introduction voiceover, or is this a way for the movie to set up the universe, similar to to how Lucas had the scroll. The, what it
3: is is in the book. Each chapter is headed by the writings of Princess Irulan, who you don't know who that is, but we'll eventually find out that she's the daughter of the emperor. So she's the one that everyone wants to wed, and she writes history. She, because she is, you know, this high up figure, she writes the histories, and there's little history lessons that are interspersed between the chapters. So it kind of makes sense to have her be the voiceover person. I Suppose. But come on, this is the lady in the radiator, right? I mean, this is just another weird lady from a Lynch world who is just talking about nonsense, and it's just funny.
2: I actually laugh out loud as she expounds on all the stuff about spice in these worlds, and then she's about to like exit stage left (laughs) It's like, oh, one more thing.
3: Yeah, that's the best.
2: There's also a prophecy about a Messiah in this story. (laughs) Almost forgot.
3: Yeah, she almost forgot fades out, and then, like, comes back. It does very much feel like a comedy, and very much in the Lynch style, I should say. It just feels like, oh, this is a put-on. This is not how you would tell a serious story. This is, uh, this is goofy.
2: Well, and then you get some credits, and then you get some more exposition. Now we're gonna see a PowerPoint with some planets, like, they're gonna tell us what the planet is, who lives on there. They gotta repeat this stuff a lot, because I guess for Lynch, it's important to get this lore. Here's the difference, like, with Star Wars, I feel that scroll. It's not actually that important. Like, especially that first one, A New Hope, they throw you in the middle of this universe... And you kind of just get it as you go along because of the storytelling. You get who the stormtroopers are and who the empire is and who the rebels are. I feel like they really want to get across how important all this lore is and they might, it's confusing and I don't know if I ever fully grasped everything that's going on here.
3: Believe it or not, but when this movie was released in theaters in 1984, they handed out a two-page flyer (laughs) that had a glossary so that you could reference it as you were watching the movie and translate what these things were.
2: Oh, did they give you a little pen light so you could read along?
1: <laughs> I don't know if you bring a flashlight or what. Yeah, I did not follow this. <laughs> oh, no. I know the book Dune came first, but when I'm looking at this and knowing Lynch was considered for Return of the Jedi, Star Wars is my theatrical comparative. And I think about how clean Lucas's narrative for that original film was where we would be established to an environment and then spend time in that environment. We would first see a Star Destroyer, then we would see Tatooine, and then we would see the Death Star, and then we would see Yavin. It was very clean and delineated, and characters took us to the places. This data dump is, I'm sorry, whatever you think of the rest of the movie, you've got to admit, this is bad storytelling. This is not how you form a narrative you may be able to do this in a book like a JRR Tolkien thing where you need to have maps in the back so people know where the hell they're going, but if you are telling a movie, if you are trying to carry people through, this is not the way to do it. I've seen video games with better setup about the levels I'm going to play.
3: Yeah, of course it's bad storytelling. I mean, anybody can can point that out, but it's David Lynch world building and that's what I love about it. We're back in a racer head. He's literally building
1: planets. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: We're back in a racer head where, yeah, just everything is strange. There's a feel of familiarity. It kind of looks like Star Wars. And yet there's a perversity that on almost every frame of this movie just leeches into the roots. And that's what I love about it. I don't love it as a translation of a coherent story. Of course it's not. But instantly with its goofy monologues and all of the set designs and things that we see here... I am completely compelled. This is exactly what I wanted the film that the guy that Eraserhead made to do when he came to Hollywood.
2: This is what I feel is the difference between Eraserhead or even Elephant Man. Those are very symbolic surrealist openings. There's they're sound, but there's not words because there are so many words here. I'm paying attention, especially for now playing okay, Arrakis. How do I, how many K's are in that? Got uh, uh, Giddy, Giddy, Pry- like I'm trying to follow all of this.
1: I never spelled anything the same way twice and I Just then did Wiki to fix it all by the end.
2: Yeah. And so for me, yeah, you could do something visual that's weird and confusing. And look, this is a film. I call it Spice World, which I I guess that's a different movie, but (laughs) it's going to be a movie about tripping on drugs and traveling through space. And yes, you could do that. You can make it weird and trippy. I think about the man who fell to Earth. David Bowie is an alien, and that's a weird, trippy sci-fi film, but it's not verbally heavy. And I, I guess maybe as a Westerner or my upbringing or whatever I'm putting a lot of value into all these words being spoken and it's not letting the visuals speak as a film should And like Lynch did in his previous films with these weird openings.
3: Yeah, I know that Lynch wanted to have more time in the editing room to play with sound. And, you know, he loves silences. I mean, that's the clear distinction between Eraserhead and this, is there were just long scenes of nothing but noises. And here, the noises are the dialogue. And and they're layered on top when they're not doing voiceover and characters saying these ridiculous things and then seeing, yeah, intertitles trying to explain these things. No, then we also hear their thoughts thoughts in voiceover as well
1: uh,
2: it, it gets confusing because there's telepaths so i don't know if people's minds are being read <laughs> or if it's just voiceover i get so confused
3: you can tell from the sound design though that's the sa- when you start to learn how he's using sound you can tell when it is a thought in the head or something that someone off camera might have said
1: yeah i can clearly tell that but some of the thoughts that we get are are completely pointless, like Max von Sydow. Against my judgment, I like this duke. Well, show me in your frickin' performance! Don't tell me!
3: I'm hearing complaints, and I, I can see you're approaching this from a linear, this is not a good storytelling, Studio Notes way, and I think you're right. This does not work as a conventional science fiction space opera. This is a Lynch film.
2: I will say this. I kind of referenced it at the beginning of the show. I have seen the TV extended cut opening, which is totally different (laughs) because I'm watching this. I'm like, where are the oil paintings of the planets that I fell asleep during in the first 10 minutes when I tried to watch this a few years ago? That is not in Lynch's cut. That is in the TV extended cut where they just have oil paintings and it's a totally different opening. Like you get much earlier on the sense of like religion Religious themes with this, like, revolt, I don't know, against robots or something. It's totally different.
3: Yeah, the longer cut that Universal made for television and ultimately was put out on DVD a decade ago is an Alan Smithy film. David Lynch removed his name from it. He has nothing to do with it because they tried to remove Lynch from the cut.
1: I'm surprised he didn't try to remove his name from the theatrical cut. I mean, like you said, he didn't get final cut. He felt he compromised too much. Why put your name on this?
3: You're baiting me to say, how could anyone like this film? I love this movie. I think that it's uh, very much, coming back to it this time, and having just watched the other two films, very much in keeping with the stylist that we saw in the previous two movies, but the longer extended cut—don't call it a director's cut—the Alan Smithy version does a whole lot to try and help people that are saying, "I can't follow what's going on. Walk me through this." And so, yes, they don't have footage to show, so they hired an artist. He looks like kind of like the guy that would draw people in court—you know, one of those <laughs> like airbrush kind of things. Show these worlds and really spell out for them. Everything that happens in chronological order, and it takes about 10 minutes of really bad music and these really bad oil paintings. You mean they
1: couldn't get Toto back?
2: Look, you can say what you want about Toto, but I love the theme of Dune. And when it (laughs) kicks in with that organ and electric guitar, I wanted like a a 12-inch single of like the regular cut and then that rockin' cut on the B-side.
1: Hell, I guess if Vangelis can do it, why not?
3: Yeah, that Toto, I mean, yeah, you know, God Bless the Rains Down in Africa, Arrakis, <laughs> I guess that was the thinking there. They had just won the Grammy, so why wouldn't you get Toto, the prog rock 80s band? But uh, they're a strange choice for this. It is a lot of their music, but a lot of their music that wasn't used in the theatrical cut. And I, unlike Jacob, don't think a lot of it works. It works when it's symphonic, when they bust out the electric guitar, I'm just thinking queen and
1: flash gordon it makes it a little too campy but i'll agree with you stewart i really like the look of most of this film there are certain scenes especially at the end with the spaceships where it looks 1960s doctor who level but when we're opening up and i remind myself everything here is practical and this is david lynch's third film And Elephant Man was not a tiny film by any means, but to think of the opulent set construction that was going on, this giant vaginal mouthed alien puppet coming out, just the look of everything from the pus-filled duke to the outfits, all of this, I kept thinking that there wasn't a plot if I was just sitting back and looking at pretty pictures. These are very pretty indeed.
3: And again, that's how I recommended a racer head. So, your your condemnation sounds like my recommendation.
1: No, it wasn't condemnation. It was a, I was complimenting it. I was complimenting the look.
2: There was some condemnation with the racer head.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're saying I'm condemning this for looking good.
2: No, I Despite all that gobbledygook, D and D, House of Atreides, House of whatever, when we get into the film, this opening scene with the Emperor and you know this just this gorgeous set, and then they bring in the Spacing Guild—I guess it's called—I had to go to Wiki to find out who these people were—but like the the outfits, that giant tank, there's people just like I don't know, the tank's leaking, I guess, because they're vacuuming up juice pouring out of it. Like it's got that again to go to Star Wars, this lived-in universe feeling to me which i really dig like okay i might not know all the dynamics because that exposition was just too heavy but i'm i'm digging what i'm seeing here and i could okay there's there's some kind of debate going on this spacing deal again a question for you Stuart. they talk about the spice mutating you are these like is that weird creature in the tank was that once a human that's been mutated by the spice
3: bingo very good this is what happens when math nerds do drugs Yes. They were once mathematicians. Just to give you a little bit of back, I don't want to go too much because God knows this book is dense. But at one point, humans had to leave robots behind. There was a revolt and they had to learn things that that they used to entrust with robots. So some people dedicated themselves to math and they ended up. By experimenting with drugs while they were doing pure mathematics, yes, got so evolved that they begin to be able to manipulate space. And it gets into a lot of quantum mathematics and theory and stuff that I don't understand and couldn't relate to you. But eggheads tell me that part is fascinating. And so that's what this guild represents. And this is Lynch's touch. When you read the book, the characters don't look like, yeah, the baby from a racer head in a fish tank.
2: <laughs> and I love the use of sound design here where there's spe- Speaking some non-English language but they got that translator and the way the two languages overlap I, I just again this feels like a real universe
3: mm-hmm. and a universe I love I mean I know I'm going to get killed for this but to me this is so much more evocative than Star Wars Star Wars to me is sterile this movie is pervy it is just so weird <laughs>
2: per- yeah it is pervy
3: yeah and that to me is a, that's a turn on I mean call me what you will maybe I'm kinky but I want my sci-fi to have less altruism in it. I like the fact that everything feels weird and seedy and conspiratorial.
2: What what starts getting weird and <laughs> conspiratorial, and I just I don't really get though is when they get into this conversation. Like, there's a telepath. There's bald chicks that could read your mind. They send her out. Okay, maybe there's something between the guild and I don't know these telepaths.
3: The benedzeret. I'll sorry to interrupt, but let me just quickly say you say the weird name. While the men are studying math, the women are studying genetics and bloodlines and they do SPICE too. And yes, they're politicians. Basically, they control royal... Bloodlines, they say who has a baby, what sex it is, and they control all of that kind of thing. And yes, the spice has allowed them to become telepathic and even select their own sex. They can choose, oh, I'm gonna have a girl or a boy just by taking spice.
2: Okay. I see, I didn't know they were spice users. I guess anyone with powers is a spice user in this universe.
3: Pretty much. yeah, these are humans, post robots. Now that we no longer trust machines, we must trust LSD.
2: What I don't get is, like, now they're talking about something about the House of Tradies and the guild. I don't know. Doesn't like them or something because they have sound guns. I don't know. Like, this is where it starts losing me again. Like, I don't know why they're going to hand over the spice to tradies who they also want to kill and get rid of.
3: Oh, this is fun because, like, I totally understood everything in this scene. <laughs> and it's, like, it's not because I'm, like, more <laughs> perceptive. Like, it was reminding me of, like, oh, I'm just steeped in this shit. Of course, you yes. wouldn't understand any of this. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was that thing that they went on for pages and pages in. But if you haven't read this book, you are fed. <laughs> yes, you are. That, that, yes. Okay, good. I'm glad it's not just me. No, no, you're not wrong. But again, I want to make the argument, and it's because it was how I felt before I had reread the book, is that you can love this because it makes no sense, because it is like gibberish or a foreign film that doesn't have subtitles and you're wondering what's going on. The fact that it's It's insane makes it kind of work as comedy. That argument
1: is so strange.
3: I mean, Eraserhead was that for me. And I I know you didn't dig that movie. So I imagine you'd have trouble appreciating this movie in that way.
1: But this one's even worse because at least I found Eraserhead to be art. This feels like commerce that's gone awry.
3: I, you know, I I guess you could call it that. I mean, he was trying to make a movie that he wanted a lot of people to like. You don't spend $40 million for a movie three people enjoy, the the watch on midnight on a Saturday in New York. Yes, they were going for something big. But what I appreciate is, again, De Laurentiis is someone that has supported Fellini and Surrealists. And he was not scared by Lynch's touch that he, he recognized that the material called for an unusual touch and I think creativity was encouraged here they weren't trying to make the most rote I mean if you want to see that go watch Krull you know there were other things at the time (laughs) that lost just as much money that also had Patrick Stewart now that I think about it and it yeah there were people that were just trying to knock them out this does feel like an artistic gamble
2: but it it seems like you're saying you're getting enjoyment this perverse enjoyment because it's kind of thumbing its nose at the convention of of sci-fi films
3: yeah maybe works satire, yeah.
2: I don't get that sense. I I guess if I got the sense that it was making fun, I don't know. It feels like it's so steeped in its own lore it doesn't know what it's doing. It it feels like it's trying to be an adaptation of the book. I don't get that naughty sense of fun that it's playing around with sci-fi books.
3: Campy. I mean, campy is campy is just self-awareness. That you just realize you're larger than life. I don't get camp out of this though.
1: If you can champion this failure I don't see how you can give any movie ever a red arrow because what you're saying is it's so bad it's all amazing i mean it's so nonsensical nah i'm
3: not i'm not using the word bad i'll say bad when i think things are bad I'm saying that this movie feels like it's channeling something nobody else has ever done before, and I think that that's interesting.
2: I mean, I, I guess if I felt like Lynch was trying to do an anti-Star Wars, because I think that's what you're kind of saying, I could maybe go along with it, but it, there's so much gobbledygook.
3: I think he's doing a druggie film, and I think that he's referencing yeah, like a Jodorowsky or a 2001 or the kind of sci-fi weirdness that normally doesn't get a $40 million budget and doesn't get mass market release i think that yeah this is a heady 60s film that got made in the 80s for children and that makes it a really unusual thing indeed
2: yeah but i don't think he goes far enough i don't think it's trippy enough then if that was his goal, i again i think he gets bogged down in all these religious themes and all all the stuff that i assume comes from the book
1: and there's so much that is trying to propel a narrative But it's like trying to push a car that has no engine. But there are just constant scene upon scene, dialogue upon dialogue, character upon character that are trying to tell us a Lord of the Rings-like story. But be it editing or be it Lynch was out of his depth and maybe he just wasn't invested enough, it does not work there. I mean, we pretty quickly move away from the phallus that I had no idea was ever supposed to be a human. I just thought it was like the only alien we could ever see in this movie. But we do get introduced to Kyle McLaughlin's Paul and his trio of teachers who come in and Patrick Stewart challenging him to some weird duel with Tron like effects. No, no, this
2: is where I think they got the idea for Minecraft. <laughs> like, it's a game that's popular with all the kids. Like, yeah, these weird, which I, I'm digging that stuff though. Like, that is the thing. There are things here that I do dig. Like, this is a weird movie that I don't really understand. And I don't think it's because of its weirdness. I think it's just a lot of poor storytelling when it really comes down to it. But I'm digging a lot lot of the weird things I'm seeing here like these three trainers come in and they're like upset that he's got his back to the door because I don't know I guess Paul's important for some reason perhaps because he's the Duke's son and it's just a royalty thing but yeah when they go into combat with Patrick Stewart like I-, I dig all that
3: if nothing else is making sense for you I think most people are going to understand yeah that that slug in a tank and the emperor of the universe are conspiring to kill our I'll use the word hero, main character, Paul, Kyle McLaughlin, who was fresh from an eight-month stint from Oregon Community Theater. His first <laughs> professional job
1: ever. I'll give Lynch this. He's loyal to his actors. I noticed several people in here that we'll be talking about before or again. Jack Nance is in here. Kyle MacLachlan, of course, from Twin Peaks. And later on, we're going to see Everett McGill, who would be Big Ed on Twin Peaks. Strangely, I don't think he ever worked with Sean Young again. I don't know that anybody's ever worked with her twice. <laughs> and she was in Blade Runner and here. Could she be the curse?
3: Now, this was her. Yeah, we'll talk about her when we get there, but I think that she was considered a hot property because of Blade Runner. But yeah, Kyle McLaughlin probably Should be selling you a used car right now Probably would be having no Professional career if Lynch just Didn't say, I think he was in Oregon At Frank Herbert's solar powered Farm and went to a local show And said, oh this guy And they called him down for a screen test and we're like Yeah, this is the guy who should star In our $40 million movie I mean anyone can see that this kid is Way out of his depth, but then again, who was Mark Hamill? And I do think That Kyle McLaughlin reads as a Boy Scout. And David Lynch, being a Boy Scout, being all sunny and lightness, I think he sees a lot of himself in Kyle. And I think that this character espouses a lot of things that David Lynch uses in his life, being a creative person. So I think that what we're seeing here is a director that has really found his on-screen alter ego, even though I don't think that this is a good performance at all.
1: I thought his performance was fine. I mean, I didn't think it was bad in any way. I I don't know that I could call any performance here bad. They're all capturing my attention. I, I could say some of the looks are a little tragic, like his teacher with the eyebrows. I mean, dude, just get, get a trimmer. And obviously, Dean Stockwell is a villain with that mustache. I mean, he was, he was practically twirling it. I couldn't remember much about this movie, but as soon as he walked in, I'm like, oh, don't trust that dude.
2: Yeah, th- I mean, they'll draw pretty early on that there's someone betraying the House of Archery that's in the house and yeah again maybe this maybe I'm starting to see what you're saying Stuart because like I feel like oh, there's going to be a messiah in this film, by the way. And oh, there's a betrayer. Like they make a lot of these things super obvious. They don't play them close to the vest at all. It's, it's, they're so obvious. Maybe it is a little bit of satire.
1: Okay, well, that's a
3: curious thing to me. I wondered if people watching this with so much confusion, if they would be able to pick out that who in this is the assassin that's going to kill Paul. We're going to see a lot of people as he's tested. He, the next 20 minutes is about testing Paul. And we're going to see a lot of different people doing that. And I I don't know that I would have guessed pick the doctor out of this. They all seem weird enough. They all seem capable. Maybe the one you might think is doing it is Gurney, Patrick Stewart, because he is the man that's training him to fight. And he really attacks him in one of these scenes with such a force that we hear Paul in one of his thoughts say, is he trying to really kill me?
1: Again, I was wondering if that was his mom reading his mind. Thank goodness for that narration so that I could tell this was unusual. But no, if it wasn't for the mustache and the facial expressions that gave Dean Stockwell away, at one point, they say... There's a traitor in the house, and then they cut directly to a door, and Dean Stockwell like looks out like Snidely Whiplash and looks around. him.
3: Well, no, we know at that point. It's a game for a while, and then at a certain point, we see the doctor get a message in a cadaver. He pulls a secret message out, and then we know. And so, yes, after that point,
1: we do. That's I have no idea what he had found in that body. I know. <laughs> yeah, he's looking for a message,
2: and then like someone else walks, and he's like, Nope, not uh, just yeah, just going about my business this year he hurries and changes
3: yeah i don't think we ever follow up on that i would have hoped that that idea was one of the cleaner ones but what we see in the scene before that are the bad guys the harconans
2: okay this is where i got some questions with these Harkonins.
3: i think these are david lynch's favorite characters they're certainly mine if ronnie rocket ever gets made it'll be about those little midgets with the red hair that is ronnie <laughs> rocket
2: yeah, the the Baron and his people the Harkonnens from Getty Prime, is it? Getty, I think, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, so again, visually very cool. I'm wondering why the Baron like floats around like Grandpa Joe on fizzy lifting drinks all the time.
1: <laughs> He's too fat. He's too fat to walk. Okay. But have we gone to Walmart lately? There are much bigger people, and <laughs> most, some of them walk. I know. He, he could have been fatter. <laughs> but
2: I'll, I'll buy that with the budget or whatever. Again, it's not something I need an explanation for, but I am looking for reasons here. Like, I am wondering what is going on. What's up with his face? Like, I'm is it just bad acne? Or at times it looks like there's almost like metal underneath it. Like, is he part robot? Just lots of weird stuff going here, which is visually cool looking. But
3: yeah, hearts plug that you could pull out to kill someone. Okay, I have never gotten over that scene. That is one of those scenes that is etched in my mind forever. Take this, Darth Vader. You think you're bad choking somebody? (laughs) F***ing obese, boil-covered man bathing in black blood, coming down and ripping the plug off of a boy that he rapes has got to be the most edgy thing ever in a PG-13 movie. He raped the boy? I mean, it was clearer in the book. I mean, that's it's very highly homoerotic, and clearly he's got a thing for his nephew as well, Sting.
2: Yeah, when Sting walks out with that weird underwear, he's totally digging on him. But yeah, no, I took this as a rape scene, so okay, I wasn't reading into it. It It's so bizarre. Like, I thought he was, like, soaking himself in diesel or something with that, I guess, black blood. And yeah, the way his nephews, which includes Sting, who's fade in this film, the way they're all looking. At whatever's going off screen, I took it as more than him just killing this guy. There was some sexual assault going on.
3: Oh, yeah. No, it's very, yeah. Uh, to me, it's the charge of the scene is that, like, this is yeah a man that feels he can do everything. His disciples have a heart plug, and he can literally pop it out and just be secreted in their stuff. It's really, yeah, it's a potent, it's cut out from the extended cut. Let me just put it this way. In trying to help the audience along with this story, they thought it best to eliminate that because they knew how upsetting it was.
2: See, what I, what I thought was weird is why didn't you eliminate Sting? Like, we'll talk more about him. I guess he does something at the end, but there are characters in here that I don't know why they're even in this, except maybe they showed up in the book.
1: I felt so bad not including Sting in that plot summary. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> Yeah, but then what I realized is if I start bringing him in, I have a lot more explaining to do, and if you're looking at just the plot, he's completely unnecessary, and the only reason he's noteworthy is he's Sting. Well, let me just throw this out here first. I think that this movie, in
3: trying to work, focuses on Paul, but the book is not necessarily about Paul becoming a messiah. Not necessarily. There's a lot of ideas and a lot of other characters and it probably should be made more like Game of Thrones as an ensemble. But because Paul is the focus, they felt they needed to include and feature heavily his arch nemesis. That it is his doppelganger in the evil family. If, you know, he's the son of Duke Leto, this is the nephew of the Baron Harkonnen, and we're going to build up these two. One day it's going to all come down to them, and I do think it's a failure of this movie storytelling that they don't build up Sting. He spent five weeks in Mexico, and he spends five minutes in his underwear, and no one's exactly <laughs> sure why.
2: Yeah, I don't know why it comes down to the two of them at the end of this film. It's baffling.
1: I didn't get doppelgangers at all. I'll say Sting is a striking visual in this film film in a movie where characters are all very striking he it doesn't even have much makeup or anything he's got a lot of aquanet going on but his look there he does make an impression
3: with what little he has i mean any sting for christ's sake he would have been at the height of the fame of the police before he became uncool with that solo career i like some of that stuff Yeah, well, it wasn't cool. That's all I'm going to say. He was cool at this time. He wouldn't be cool in three years. But right now, he's at the height of that. He didn't even want to do this movie. He read the script. He didn't understand it. He just wanted to work with David Lynch. And I think that he was just a Razorhead fan. And he was like, I want to do this movie. But uh, yeah, I think that he basically, like many of the people, showed up wanting to please Lynch, not sure of what they were making.
2: Yeah, he stands around and smiles a lot. But he is memorable.
3: Yeah, but I think, you know, they're both being tested. If you were making a cleaner storyline, you were seeing that both of these guys are rising up the ranks about who's going to control Arrakis and that, you know, we just don't see much of Fade, but he ultimately will be given responsibilities and tested by his barren uncle. Meanwhile, yeah, lots of tests for Paul, including, I think, one of the creepiest ones, another scene that haunted me from childhood, the box.
2: Because this sisterhood of psychics, they're upset with Jessica, Paul's mom, because they were only supposed to have girls to create, I don't know, something, but she decided to have this boy because she loved the Duke so much.
1: It was supposed to be like really old world, right? Like he was supposed to have a daughter who would marry the house of Harkonnen's son and thus... Stop the feuding. Something like that.
3: Yeah, Arnie's got it. Yeah, this family's (laughs) war could be ended if only she had done the right thing. But by having a boy, and I guess Baron don't do girls. We've seen that pretty evidently. Girly men, maybe, but not actual biological girls. Then, yes, there's no one for Paul to marry. I guess they don't believe in marriage equality and Harkonnen. And so, yes, it's just going to continue to be feud.
1: Okay. So in the Reverend Mother's view, if Paul had been a woman, he would have married Sting. Yeah. So that, all right. I didn't get that Sting was a son. You know, I thought it was like a nephew. It is a nephew. Please don't make me explain that family tree. There's
3: a lot I could tell you, but just treat it like a son. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I I. I don't get what the deal is between Harkonnen and our treaties.
3: And I don't either. As someone that read the book many times... You don't need to understand other than they hate each other.
2: Uh, Yeah, I just don't know why, like, I don't, okay. Why things are being switched. Uh, Who controls the spice controls the world. So now the emperor has decided to give it to our treaties. I don't know why, whatever. But yeah, Reverend Mother, she has it out for Paul. She's going to test him, I guess. I don't know why.
1: Does she think he's the Mujahideen or whatever? (laughs) The
3: Kwisatz Haderach, yes. What she is testing, what she's hoping for is she can kill him, is that ultimately, if the Spacing Guild wants him dead and she works for the Emperor and the whole plan is to kill him, she wants to kill him. But she also wants to know if, indeed, this... Creature that they were hoping after hundreds of years to manipulate the gene pool and finally create. She's fascinated to know if Jessica might have actually pulled that off. And this is him passing this test would be the first step to him being a human being and not an animal. Don't ask me to go into that concept much further.
1: You know what's making me feel really sad is that I am actually have followed some of this. Which means that really awful in their head narration worked to a degree. (laughs) It was always
3: part of the design to have that. It wasn't like they were in the editing room and like, oh, let's have them talk over it because no one's getting this. They always wanted some of that, but in reducing the movie to two hours and 17 minute theatrical, they overused it.
2: Yeah, there's some weird voiceover.
3: They used it in places where they felt like it was, we're going to just say things just to say things we've already said before because we're just, we're second guessing ourselves. We think no one's understanding what's going on.
2: So the selective breeding done by the sisterhood was supposed to bring about a female, I'm just going to say Messiah because I can't say the...
3: No, Messiah. No, Messiah. It was supposed to be a woman that would marry Sting and bring the houses together.
2: Oh, okay, but instead we got Paul, who, there's some prophecy of a messiah, whatever, they're testing them.
3: Jessica believed that she had the potential to make this messiah, and so she went against orders and made a Paul instead of a Pauline.
2: Okay, They, they make it a big deal that it's like, oh, she had a boy, and that's what the duke wanted,
3: so she had it.
1: Did she have a choice? I mean, is this a universe where, like, the mothers can somehow genetically manipulate?
3: Yes. The Benajesaret can. The Benajesaret can because of spice. And
1: I do feel like
3: one reading of this movie is this may be the first transgender sci-fi hero I've ever seen. (laughs) A boy that was supposed to be a girl that must go into a place that women can never dare to stare and be some kind of crossing.
2: Yeah, the sand vaginas, like, worship him and...
3: Yeah, no, yeah, a a worm that's both phallus and vaginal. I I definitely feel like one reading of this movie with gender politics is that, yeah, Kyle will even get married to his feminine lover kind of looks exactly like him, but just as a Sean Young girl.
2: But he gets tested by having to put his hand in the box. What's in the box? That's all I'm thinking.
3: When we get to Mulholland Drive, you might be asking that again, but I think that (laughs) this is just classic David Lynch. He loves mysteries and enigmas and building up all of these things, that what's in the box kind of mystery is just what he does. And this scene, just for me, works so well. I love it.
1: I've seen this scene ripped off in other films, and so, whether it was my memory of seeing this prior and not remembering specifics or seeing it in other movies, I knew it was all mental, and because he couldn't see his hand it wasn't really doing anything and it's one of the effects one of the few effects that looks really bad is the superimposed flesh melting hand
2: yeah I never took this as real again you're dealing with a telepath I I figure she's messing with his mind but the point is he's not giving into fear he'll keep quoting that like you can't give into fear you got to keep a steady mind because if he pulled his hand out That's what would have killed him.
3: He would be an animal, only a human being. And this is a world post people identifying as humans, post robot. There's something else at this point. It's a complicated concept that I struggle with. But if he pulls his hand out, he's just a a man animal and thus deserves to die. But if he can keep it in, it means that he has within him the ability to overcome pain and thus puts him further on the short list for being the Kwisatz Hatteret.
2: Yeah, and right after that, you get some more stuff about, like, the water of life and...
3: Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is all about testing. I mean, I think there's a lot of verbiage. But what's important here is we're seeing Paul tested again and again. He's a good fighter. He is someone that's having dreams that will be prophecies. He's able to withstand this pain. He's both male and female. He's learning his mother's secret powers only women are supposed to have. And he can also use the latest Atreides technology, which was completely made up by Lynch. Of course it is sound as a weapon, the weirding module.
2: Yeah, no, I do love this concept that, yeah, depending on the word you use and the the way you say it, like, it becomes a weapon. I I do think that's a great idea.
1: And there was weirding in the book, right? But what I read was it was kung fu?
3: Nah, not really. There was something called the weirding way, and it was implied that that's what made them badass. But there was no explanation about what specifically... Lynch would have to create something visual. And what he chose, of course what he chose. What does he really love? Sound design. And that's why he gave himself a year in the editing room to play with the sound design. And it just makes sense to me that when we get to the end battle where it's lasers versus words, I'm like, of course, Lynch would see words as more powerful than visuals. I think that that is truly where his mind goes and what he likes to do in film.
2: Yeah. And you get this kill bot, sparring bot thing, shooting out spikes and whatnot that we see him practicing this weirding way on.
3: Mm hmm. And then the final test, I do think, is just being his father's son. That, you know, we don't get much with Duke Leto. We're told he's popular. I don't see anybody that really likes him. But the guy's moping on a balcony and he tells him the sleeper must awaken. And that that really is something that rings in Paul's head. He'll spend much of the movie trying to live up to that. Trying to awaken his sleeper consciousness and be the son that his father wanted him to be
2: and there may not be a reason for this but why is the royal family going to dune like that seems like something you give to middle managers
3: no they are inheriting the plan the, there's a balance of power transfer that for 70 years the Harkonnens mined arrakis for spice and that has been taken away from them. The emperor says no more. You, there was some kind of skirmish, undefined. They lost. You don't get to do this anymore. We're giving it to the new house. And yes, they must then go to that place. Partly because the emperor is hoping to kill them there.
2: So they they have to live there. They have to get. I'd be kind of pissed off if I was the duke as well, man. He's got a nice ocean
1: view. Mm-hmm. Well, the duke does talk, and I didn't realize the emperor was making the move there. But he talks about wanderlust, basically. I mean, he talks about just wanting to go to a new place and discover new challenges. I don't feel like the Duke is going to be homesick. I think he's looking forward to the new... Relocation.
3: Correct. Part of the lesson is you have to push yourself beyond your comfort zone. You have to expand your mind, which is, of course, what Spice is all about as a metaphor and as a drug.
2: And we're going to see that as we get ready to travel to Dune. All these... Look, I don't want to bash the effects too much, but big budget. It's kind of silly looking when all these ships are flying in uh, uniform lines, I guess, to get in these canisters so space can be folded around it. But I'm going to say... Lynch lets me down here. I thought this space travel would be way more trippier. And we see this alien kind of floating around and, I don't know, some kind of haze. But I, I thought this would be a bigger deal.
3: It kind of shits out the universe is the problem. I love the idea of space folding. And if they, you're right, if they had had the optical effects that allowed it to feel like you were bending a mirror or something, something they could easily do now with computers. But back then, I guess they just, the special effects guys, it was beyond them to be able to to visually demonstrate that. What we get, I'll I'll agree, it's not like I don't like it, but it doesn't say space is folding around them. The idea that they don't fly there, but the planet is actually bent over them, and they just, they stood still, they've traveled without moving, and the planet has been brought to them because space is like origami, and you can just fold it in all different contusions if you're a space and
1: guild navigator. And I got a little of that from Virginia Madsen's opening. I wish it was shown to me, though. I wish that there was more to it than just at the beginning where she's talking about what spice can do. Yeah,
2: I agreed. I feel like what Lynch did with Twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 with a racer head. It, this is a letdown here. With so much more money, he could have done something real trippy, and this is the moment to do that, and we don't get it.
3: You really needed a good effect to demonstrate this concept. Otherwise, you cut it, and they were really pushing to cut this. It was Lynch that said, no, 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 I really love this idea.
2: No, you, got, you gotta have this in. I mean, this is all about the spice. I do want to see it.
3: They could just fly there. I mean, you don't have to have it, but... Nah.
2: I want to see this because they made such a big deal of it at the beginning that, like, This is the key to space travel, being able to full-time. Like, I feel I deserve to see that at least once in a Dune film.
3: Sure. I just think that, you know, it's a complicated production. They shot and shot and shot. I think they spent a a year filming this movie down in Mexico and, and then did some pickup shots, you know, for three months
1: afterwards.
3: Yeah, some things work really well, and some things Lynch would have wanted the opportunity to go back and refilm, but that was beyond him once he was in the editing phase. And so I think he never cited the scene specifically. He said he fought to keep it in, but I do think that, yeah, it was something that they should have tweaked so that we could have really, yes, been shown the concept as opposed to been told. And what we see is the little spaceman, like, he just kind of barfs out the planet. Yes. Or it's really, <laughs> it's just not visually folding at all. He didn't fold anything. It's got to look like a laundromat, not like he's (laughs) <laughs> you know, had a night at the pub and is now vomiting. And,
2: and I gotta say again, here's my summary of this movie it's about two hours long. The first hour is all exposition, and then the second hour, there's less exposition, though I may be more confused with what's going on. But when we get to Dune, we're gonna get more exposition. And this is my problem like, we're way deep into this movie. Now we're being told that the Harkonnens are leaving suicide bombers and, and booby trapping things for their treaties that, to mess up their spice production and mining but i'm just being told all that i'm not seeing any of it and i feel like at this point in the movie you stop telling me things
3: no you see it you see an assassin attempt there's like a needle that tries to hit paul when he's in the room
2: yeah we get that but again i just feel like i want more of a visual film than i'm getting i feel like i am being told a lot of stuff
3: do you want a film or do you want a tv series because what I feel like would help this a lot is if we had had three episodes to set up the transfer of power, and then, yeah, but maybe the season finale is that Leto is killed and the mother and child are thrown out to the desert. But obviously, you could really expand upon these storylines, but if you have two hours and 17 minutes, you do what you have to.
2: Well, yeah, but that also starts at the writing stage, at the beginning of the film production, where you don't try to do all of this in a two-hour thing. and. Maybe this is showing my hand a little bit, but I wouldn't mind seeing a four-hour or a three-hour version of a David Lynch-approved
3: Dune. Like I was going to say, you're going to get that next week. Yeah, but no Lynch.
1: What I felt was, in this day and age, this movie would have been Dune, part one of two, part two coming out next Christmas, you know?
2: And I would be good with that because there's a lot of stuff I'm liking here, but trying to cram all this into two hours... Like, I want to see things, especially with someone that could create some good visuals. I've seen a lot of good visuals in this film thus far. But to be told so much, again, so far into the film, it's it's frustrating for me. I'm not enjoying this. It's like someone is reading me the book.
1: And there's so many characters. So many damn characters. And when we get to Arrakis, there's even more. Max von Sydow shows up and... He's another doctor, and he's introducing them to the world.
2: Another race, the Fremen.
1: But he's not one of the Fremen. He's just been around the Fremen. He's not? But Paul thinks he might be a Fremen. Oh my gosh. (laughs) He's an ecologist. He actually is there to
3: study the planet for the emperor.
2: But his eyes are blue within blue, which the Fremen have.
3: When you hang around long enough on Arrakis and consume spice, and you consume spice just by breathing the air, eventually it turns your entire eye including the whites of it, blue.
1: Which is this effect that all I could think of was a movie that came out earlier the same year, Ghoulies, when the guy turns evil. <laughs> what doesn't remind you of Ghoulies? And and Jack Nance is in both of them, I might add.
3: Who isn't thinking about Ghoulies? I mean, I was thinking about Lawrence of Arabia, but you know, we
1: had Ghoulies. <laughs> did anybody's eyes glow in Lawrence of Arabia? No, but Yes, did... Peter O'Toole's eyes are strikingly blue in that movie. But they weren't glowy blue like here with the animated. Yeah. They were pretty close. They were natural blue. That said, I did think Max von Sydow was Peter O'Toole for a while. (laughs) Yeah, and
3: there's a lot of these old Hollywood luminaries in this. Again, I went back and even watched Lawrence of Arabia before I watched Dune again. Because I'm like, how close is the model? And I can see it's the movie that they probably, in the early stages, wanted it to be. That Paul would be this outsider character that could unite all of these tribes in Arabia. I mean, this novel is heavily influenced by Lawrence of Arabia. The historical figure and the 1962 David Lean movie, clearly an influence. The idea that it could be someone that unifies tribes and gives them power, that all of these small cultures in desert surroundings become one unified nation, that political aspect. A lot of this novel has a a political treatise to it. I mean, it will really explain how you keep control of power. One big difference between this book and this movie is Paul is not magical in the book. It is stated that the Bene Gesserit put the myth that a messiah would come to this planet so they could manipulate them. Religion is just a way of keeping people under your control. And Paul believes he is a messiah, but may or may not be a messiah. To be defined by, I guess, some of the sequel books I haven't read yet. But when you finish Dune, <laughs> you don't see rain coming from the sky. You don't see him doing anything magical. He has proclaimed to be the Messiah that the Bene Gesserit has told these people for hundreds and hundreds of years is coming for them.
2: Well, yeah, I, th- I think not revealing that would, well, depending on how you, again, write this movie, that, that could be very disappointing. I feel like that is what this is building up to. Yeah. And one of the things you get at this point when they're hanging out with Max Van Sietow, which again, cool visuals is you get these suits and you learn about them, how they reclaim your sweat so you can drink it and you can crap and piss in them. And, And again, they're very striking looking. The design, it's one of the things I remember even when I was eight and watched about five minutes of this before I went and sought out R2-D2 that I remembered.
3: I think there's three ways you could have made Dune if you wanted to make the simplified, coherent version. You could have made the Star Wars version. You could have made the political intrigue version with lots of characters and it's all about who's got the ring and who's got the power. And then there's the ecology version, where in the 60s that became a big movement and it was clearly the inspiration for why Frank Herbert even wrote Dune and and how we turn the tide to uh, deserts and make them watery and pure. I think all of the science stuff that's in there is probably the least helpful for the plot, but it does retain that aspect of the book that's all about hippieism and the ideals of being able to take a a wasteland and renew it.
2: And one of the things we start getting, because Paul's going to go out with his dad and they're going to check out some spice mining, like you you get this in voiceover, like, is there a relationship between the worms and the spice? And we know that these worms... Look, Tremors stole a lot from this, right? These worms are attracted to vibrations. They go after those vibrations. When those spice miners are out there, they go after them. But as he's talking about this, seeing this from an ecological standpoint, I'm wondering, yeah, are these, is the spice spices like grinding up worm eggs or something? And that's why these worms get all upset. What is this relationship between the spice and the worms? It's not just something that they're cultivating out of the sand. It, it seems like there's something larger here that things are feeding off of each other.
3: I mean, my theory is, and this was somewhat helped by the professor that I had in college that really asked me to look at it this way is that spice just represents culture and that you can't retain a culture without including everything that helps make it. And so that even these things that are perceived as the enemy, this threatening monster that pops out of the sand like a, you know, Jaws or something and will eat the mining operations, they all have a purpose. Everything exists in balance. It's very zen. And that, yes, the water of life and spice spice are made up of worm matter and vice versa and so you can't kill these worms you can't get rid of them they are in fact the reasons why you have the treasure and the culture to begin with but all you really need to understand watching this movie is man this looks like a porno now
1: it does are you really going to tell me you did not see penis I saw Graboids from Tremors because they ripped this off. I saw Beetlejuice worms <laughs> because they ripped this off. Why is it that you always make the dirty jokes when it's inappropriate, but when it looks like an <laughs> alien penis, you never see it? You know what I really saw? is a goddamn Sarlacc. Lucas Shutsu. This thing <laughs> is in the sand with all the teeth. Yeah, but the, the sarlacc was a vagina. Yeah, this is
2: sexual.
1: Yeah, so is this when it opens up
3: its petals. It's the sexual imagery is very heavy. Adrian Giger was going to be a part of this, and Lynch actually fired him. And and got the guy that did 2001 instead.
1: For me to say this means a lot. Stuart, I think you have a dirty mind.
3: What? That's what's crazy about this, is we could watch the most innocent thing, and you'll make a scat joke, but here we have a movie (laughs) that is literally... I mean, the special effects artists, everyone said they were really uncomfortable with the phallic imagery in this movie, and (laughs) if it would translate to a child audience, and if this could play. You didn't see that? It goes...
2: With both sexes, like you're saying, yeah. When when those come out of the sand, they're they're very phallic, and then just the way those mouths open up, like, and what it looks like, yeah, it it's sexual imagery. Come on,
3: harnessing that as the power of the planet. I mean, I feel like these are core images. I mean, yeah, it's male and female. He's got to go into the space where women can't look and and be something that they've been trying for years to create. Yeah, that this is. All a part of Paul transcending, yeah, just being the son of a duke and becoming this
1: messiah is crossing all these gender lines. I guess you have to follow the plot a lot more in order to get that
2: have you watched a Porto? They have no plot and I know what's sexual.
1: Like, <laughs> No, I'm talking about the gender lines thing Stuart was just talking about. I'm like...
3: No, no, no. I mean, yeah, it's not in the book. I mean, to me, this is a reading I specifically have watching this movie, but Carlo Rimbaldi did design the alien and I know that when we reviewed that movie, you and I disagreed about the phallic quality of the alien, but to me... I've always found his work to... It was just... I mean, it's obvious. And I want to add, H.R. Giger designed the alien, but Carlo Rimbaldi built it. And Carlo Rimbaldi built all these worms. And so I think there's a very similar quality between the xenomorph in this Gourney Weaver film and what's burrowing through these dunes and disrupting this mining operation. To me, it's very sexual. And I, I think it's easy to have those readings if you're inclined to have them. But it's also an adventure movie. I mean, its we've gone out into the ocean and there are these sea monsters and except that the ocean is is all sand there is no water on this planet and we get a david lynch cameo as this whole spice factory is destroyed by a worm we see him leading people out and evacuating kind of fun
2: yeah i don't get like wouldn't this happen every time there is a spice miner out there since these worms go after the vibrations
3: it does happen all the time but (laughs) What is said in dialogue and not demonstrated very well...
2: Okay, I I missed it.
3: (laughs) Yes, is that there is a big ship to come and pick up the drill once they're done. And the Harkonnens have intentionally sabotage that stuff they've left this equipment faulty so every time that they go to like okay the worms coming come save us it didn't work and thank goodness the duke and the prince were able to swoop in and save these people who would have otherwise been eaten
2: yeah I, I thought the point of this was to show that the duke is much more benevolent than the harkonnens were because he's willing to sacrifice whatever spice they've mined to save the workers and let them come in his ship
3: yeah in general i think house atreides is much nicer to the indigenous people and- and that the harconians were horrible to them and there are stories in the book to show that
2: Okay, so only the Fremen mine the stuff? I thought if you're the Harkonnens or the Archerides, you had to bring your own labor force.
1: That's what I thought, too. I thought the Harkonnens were doing the <laughs> mining, which is why they blew up the mining machines. is because they were killing the Harkonnens. When the, later on, the Fremen are doing the attacks, the Fremen aren't killing the Fremen.
3: No, and the Fremen aren't the miners. Just, just, Just to make it more complicated for you. Those are free agents. Miners can come from anywhere in the universe, from any of the planets. So it's just a job. It's just a job. They're just hired there to do it and and whatever. Chinese labor. The Fremen are the are the people that live there deep in the sand, and they are you know like a lot of native cultures. They are kind of wiped out by the industrial you know destroying the rainforest. However you want to see the metaphor, but they're people impacted directly and negatively by the mining operation. How Harkonnen was cruel to them. They saw them as something to be exterminated. Atreides is trying to bring them in. They are like, well, maybe they can be the maid. And so we have Linda Hunt fresh from her Oscar win in a almost useless cameo as the little person that kind of helps reveal who the traitor in House Atreides really is.
2: Yeah, this is another character. I don't know why she's in here. She's, again, someone that's probably an important in that book here. She's, Here to get stuck with a needle, an assassin
3: needle? I mean, you just got to keep in mind that the book intentionally juggles hundreds of people. And you're not sitting there thinking all the time about Paul. But because this is a movie trying to emulate the Star Wars hero's journey model, they made it more about Paul than necessarily the... I mean, the book is a mess, too. I mean, it should be said, some of these stories aren't even in the narrative. They have, like, appendices you have to go and read after.
1: Oh, my God. I never want to touch that book.
3: Yeah, it's like Lord of the Rings.
1: Yeah, it's very Lord of the Rings.
3: But no,
2: this is what I'm saying. This is a bad adaptation. It doesn't sound like a bad adaptation because it's a problem with the book.
3: It's not. It's a very faithful one.
2: But it's a problem with the storytelling then.
3: Yeah, yeah, and you may have that problem with the book, but it's compounded because of what we need from a movie to tell a story. Books can be messier and they can go on tangents and they can go on for as long as they want to, but movies are constrained by time and by our ability to follow so many things visually. And yeah, it's just harder to make it work.
1: And you could also skim over pages of books. When it goes into areas there, you're like, what the hell? You can kind of gloss over. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I did. I didn't want to read about that ecology shit. See? And whereas a movie, well, we could fast forward, but that's not what we do in Now Playing.
3: <laughs> right. And the idea is to make all of that kind of work. And so, yeah, you, you either throw out a lot or you just give a quick lip service to And and what Lynch chose to do. And it should be said, if what I read is true, Herbert was... Very involved, like kind of pushing him to keep things. I don't know that Lynch had the freedom to cut a whole lot out. The man that wrote the book kept giving him suggestions. So take that for what it is. His name is not shared on the screenplay, but Frank Herbert was there during the writing phase. And I don't think he wanted to lose any of his darlings. But as far as structure goes, this is very much following the story as it was laid out in the book. And it is confusing to read, just as it's confusing to watch. But I think, again, what they're hoping is the hook gets you. There's a spy in this house, and they moved into a house full of booby traps, and suddenly it's revealed. The royal family falls over drugged, and it's the doctor who doesn't want to betray them because he hates them. He wants them to do his dirty work, that he wants them to avenge the wife that was killed by the baron. So the doctor is actually willing to sacrifice his employers, to get revenge on the man that hurt his wife.
1: That's really muddy. I never could suss out his true motivation. There's one scene where Paul's mom is like, well, there's something he's almost wanting to tell me, and do I trust him? Well, he has this tattoo on his forehead that says he's loyal. I ended up getting that he was a traitor, and then he was like a traitorous traitor. He he betrayed his duke, with the hope that the Duke will kill the Baron with this poison tooth. But I could never... Quite figure out Dean Stockwell's entire motivation. I didn't get this thing about trying to betray his boss so that that would kill the man who killed his wife. Didn't get that.
3: Everyone thinks that he's loyal because he's got this diamond on his forehead, which means that they've done something to his mind that he could never kill. So if you got that diamond on your head, you're, it's impossible for you to kill. So royal people hire you because, like, oh, good. Then we know that you're not going to assassinate us. And so you would never suspect the doctor. And I like that twist,
2: not because I understood the diamond in the forehead thing, but I did like that, oh, he betrayed him because this is a way to kill the Baron with this poisonous gas tooth, I guess, while wow, the Baron's raping you or something.
3: <laughs> I don't know what he was planning to do. He's getting awfully close. They knew he was going to get close. He's like, he's going to get near you. I don't know what he's going to do, but he's going to get near <laughs> you, bite on the tooth, and breathe it out. Poor... Jurgen Proch now, he, he, during the filming of this second degree burns, when that smoke came out, mm. it actually, it went wrong and burned up his mouth.
1: He looked like the Baron afterwards. That's an actor I know really well. He was the, the bad guy in a ton of films, really. But in Beverly Hills Cop 2 is the one I know him perhaps best for. And he has this scarred up, pockmarked face. And I'm looking at him here and I didn't recognize him. I guess this is where he got the scars and the pockmarks.
3: <laughs> I don't know. His, his claim to fame was Das Boot. It was a German film that won the Oscar in 1980 and kicked off Wolfgang Peterson's career, but submarine movie that people love, I've never seen. That's why he got this gig and I don't know what he looked like there, but hopefully it wasn't a permanent scarring.
1: We'll see him again in Fire Walk With Me. I guess Fire Walked With His Cheeks.
3: What I hear is all these actors love Lynch. That he could have abused them and maybe he did, but they loved it and they were all for it. And I think it is a testament that many of them came back and worked with him again, that this was a collaborative I don't know if fun's the right word. Lynch was working in Mexico. He prefers to be in LA and it was in a high altitude. Mexico City is way up there so people were nauseous. They were drinking the water. They were getting sick. There were problems on this set but I can't find a cast member reflecting on this that had anything bad to say about the dynamics on the set. They loved making this movie and they believed that Lynch was a genius. But hero's journey, I'm not sure what step it is, but yeah, you got to lose your father, right? You you have to step up and be the man on your own. The sleeper must awaken, but it can't be woken up by your dad, right? He's got to die <laughs> so that Paul can become the hero that we're expecting him to now that we're in act two.
1: He never refuses the call if we're going to go complete Campbellian, but yeah, the father figure does have to die and that's going to happen here. Everybody dies. I mean, it's amazing to me that how successful Conan is in killing every single person in House Atreides.
2: And I feel like, like Lynch did some things that were successful in Elephant Man and Eraserhead, like where you get these weird jumps in time. Here, I feel like, okay, second act- the second half of this film, really, I should be getting this. Like, all the pieces have been put into motion. Now it's just about it all playing out. And yet we get, like, this battle. Maybe he's just not an action dude. and doesn't want to shoot action scenes. But this stuff is just very poor. And I'm not expecting, you know, Star Wars. But it's just, it, it's very poor. It's not even up to, I don't even think it's acceptable footage when they're they're having these battles going on between the two houses.
3: Well, I mean, you're talking about this particular coup, right? The Doctor is torn down the shields and they're they're being ambushed, basically. Yes. Go grab the pug Let's run out into the desert And uh, The pug was cute I, The pug's perhaps
1: my favorite character in this
3: <laughs> And we don't <laughs> see what happened to him We see Patrick Stewart with him And we'll see Patrick Stewart later I have to presume the worst I have to think he was worm food
1: <laughs> <laughs> Dog with worms There you go
3: But yeah I mean Not all of them are dead uh, Spoiler alert for the sequel But one character we see Get shot in the head Comes back and is a major player I think it's why they included him here It was a character you really Really could have eliminated He did almost nothing He shows up at the beginning And saying Hey I'm gonna go to the planet earlier And then we see him later Wearing the shield And the bullet Does this cool thing Where it goes through And in slow motion Shoots him in the head And you're like Who was that guy? Well Yeah
2: Duncan I Idaho you mean? Like, why is Duncan Idaho in this film?
3: Yes. Because he's the big bad guy in part two.
2: Okay, it feels like he's supposed to be like the Han Solo to <laughs> Paul's Luke here. And yeah, I don't know why he's in this. Just like Sting, just like so many characters, I don't know why he's in this movie.
3: Yeah, they're not well served. Again, Linda Hunt won an Oscar. This is her next film so that she could fall over and like bleed out on a floor. These are, you, you could have gotten anybody to do this, but uh, they got the best people to do these cameos. Max von Sydow, yeah, he's just kind of like, I think they rip open his still suit, he's like squirting water or something and thrown out. My favorite one, though, is the, the Barker from Elephant Man. He's here as their mintat, Thurfer Hawat. God help me. The guy with the bushy a- eyebrows, who's kind of been guiding Paul, they, he's actually taken prisoner. They poison him, and then, like, his only way of staying alive is to milk a hairless cat. I love that scene. I was
2: wondering what was going on with that. I, again, bizarre stuff, but I feel like things should start falling into place at this point, so now you're introducing life-saving cat milk? I don't know. I, it's just, it's so bizarre in the middle of a battle.
3: It's Lynch man. I mean, can you explain why there was miniature chickens man-made that they were eating at the dinner table in a racer head?
2: That went with the vibe of the film. I, I guess if I understood what this film's vibe was better, and if it was being told better, and not so convoluted and dense, I could go with it more.
3: Yeah, what I'm hearing is that because this was a book, I want to know what the story was, and that doesn't seem to be what you would like about this movie, is the way that the story is told.
2: No, I don't think I would like Like, necessarily all that book stuff. Again, weird, trippy space movie. I could go with that. And and so I wish Herbert wasn't standing over Lynch's shoulder as he was writing the
1: screenplay. And maybe in a three-hour and 15-minute cut, this would all have room to breathe. But in the two-hour and 15-minute cut... It feels like the wrong darlings were salvaged.
3: That was the frustration. That's why Lynch walked away really mad. He wasn't really a hater towards his bosses, but he was really mad that he was stuck with this two-hour, 18-minute rule. And, yeah, he felt like exactly that, Arnie, that the wrong things got cut and reduced and that as someone that likes a slower pace and time to breathe... This movie never does that. It's not a fast-moving movie, but certainly the way that the story explodes and goes in side tangents and all that, you always feel like something is happening and there's no lingering on any moment.
1: And I just am struggling with fingernails to follow along. And basically it is. You said like a foreign language movie with no subtitles. This is kind of like me watching a Spanish language movie with no subtitles where I get some of the words, so I follow the gist of the movie, but I couldn't tell you the very specifics. And that's what's kind of happening here for me. Is that bad?
3: Yes. I mean, given that it's Lynch, given that surrealism is always understanding that there is a part you must not understand, that there is no explanation to give you, I am comfortable with that. This is a surrealist. He's working in that format. And so he's reducing the plot to, yes, hazy in and out moments of clarity.
1: But he's not really doing that. He's flooding me with dialogue that's just too dense to follow. That's not surrealism. Sure it is. Yeah. I mean, to be overwhelmed by dialogue
3: that makes no sense... To be consumed by gibberish is surreal.
1: And I don't feel like he's following in his artistic vision here. This does not feel of a hole with a racer head to me. This feels like his attempt at making a commercial project while not knowing what a commercial project actually is.
3: Well, let me just say this, because what I'm hearing is, is that this movie is like this because of failings and not because of choice. I think that's true to a point. I mean, I don't think that he, when he storyboarded this, says, oh, it's going to be exactly like this. But I I think that Lynch is a director who's said many, many times there are happy accidents that a lot of the things that have stuck out to people as being unique about his films were not things that he scripted or knew about that through something that happened out of his control, it just occurred in the film and he was able to capitalize on it. And that to him being a creative mind is just seizing the opportunities. I don't think that they wanted Dune to be this way at all, but because it wasn't intended to me, doesn't mean I can't enjoy it that it is this way.
2: And for me, I'll go with surrealism. We'll get lots of weird dreams in the second half, uh, something about a second moon and water and a hand opening up.
3: Yeah, I don't even feel like explaining it to you. Yeah, just shit like that.
2: Yeah, no, it's there's no <laughs> point. I could go with that vibe. My problem is there's still a narrative going on in this, much more than Eraserhead. And with Eraserhead, I felt something. I felt anxiety. With Elephant Man, I felt something. Very sentimental film. I'm not feeling anything in the second half, and I feel like this is where I should be the most invested with Paul. And this is now turning to me. Yeah, you said it gibberish that I just I don't care about that. I don't care about going on that journey or that trip with as he's, I don't know, taking up some other name and training the Fremen and. it's kind of cool when he rides those sandworms, but I'm just losing interest at this point because I I feel it falls apart here. Like, I feel like I should know where what this story is after an hour of watching it, and I feel even more lost. Not in a good way, though. I don't feel, look, I want to say it's not intentional that I'm lost. Maybe Lynch designed all this. I I don't know if that's the case, though. I think it's a problem with how this story is getting adapted, with the way Lynch wants to tell a story. It's, It's a number of things, but it's not a good feeling this time I, I i'm feeling frustrated and it's it's a bad trip for me
1: i'll agree jacob completely because i thought we're at about the 90 minute mark of this 2 hour and 15 minute movie and so many of the characters have gone away. They're all dead. And I'm like, well, okay. Now we finally had a culling and we can focus on this. We can focus on Paul, his mother, and we're finally being introduced to the mysterious Fremen. And this is the time where I really thought things would kick off and be streamlined and I'd be able to follow. And here's where it actually goes the other way and just becomes so disjointed and... That I'm not interested anymore and I'm not even appreciating the visuals.
3: Yeah, this is where definitely I think everyone is just like, wait a minute, this is the good stuff. This is where the character learns the powers and comes back and kicks ass and we get the large scale battles. I mean, the best stuff in Lawrence of Arabia are those moments and they become montage as narrated by Virginia Madsen you know, semi-ironically. And that is not the way to go with telling an epic... I mean, Lawrence of Arabia would have sucked if Alec Guinness, like, kind of was talking over it while you saw a couple shots of (laughs) someone running through the desert on a horse.
2: Yeah, I I feel like this is where the most is getting edited. And again, there's cool stuff I'm enjoying. Like, when those sandworms all surround Paul to, like, I don't know, worship him or commune with him, whatever, I'm digging that imagery. If you all of a sudden you want to have this be a biblical-type story... Cool, I'm going with that, but it is it is the pacing and the editing where, yeah, we're going to jump into a battle and we're going to lasso around a sandworm and ride it and it loses something. It doesn't, again, it doesn't feel like a good space trip. It doesn't feel like a good Star Wars ripoff. It, it becomes a mess in the second half, which is weird because as messy as that first half was with all that exposition, I was still vibing with it and digging with it. And this is where it's losing me now.
1: Things are happening with no reason, is my problem, is when they're captured by the Fremen and they're like, oh, you have the weirding way and you must teach us. I'm like, what? Where did this come from? And then he has to ride the worm and he wants to start the revolution. Everything is being thrown in here. And from this moment to the moment where he drinks the water, I'm confused why anything is happening. One thing I really like,
3: and I don't think maybe anyone else would like it unless they've read the book. But an adaptation choice that Lynch made that is absolutely not in the book is the idea that they have those weirding modules and that, yeah, he's gonna train with them. We have that, I think, a a very funny scene where he's like, kick the obelisk, you know, hit the obelisk, shout at the obelisk. Now stand back while I just talk to it and blow it apart. I mean, I just, I really dig the, the whole idea of the weirding module.
2: But where does he get the module? Like, these are the things I'm asking. Where did all this come from? All of a sudden, they have all these weirding guns.
3: Well, yes, those scenes are eliminated. And I imagine somewhere they're lying on the editing room floor. And, and I'm not forgiving it for that. But I, what I wanted to point out was the fact that this is Paul taking something that he learned from his mother. Again, the Bene speaking the voice. They have a way of making you do things you don't want to
1: when they talk
3: like this. (laughs) And we've seen that in a couple scenes. It's Paul that has actually implemented that as a weapon that men can use. That this is something that only women have been able to use up to this point. Men can use. And that, again, was just David Lynch's idea here. And that they they have the blueprints when they escape in that pod. It's mentioned in dialogue. They have two still suits. And they have the blueprints to rebuild those modules. And yes, we would have liked to have seen an episode or two of the Dune miniseries or TV series. I think there's enough material with all these books. They could actually just make this an HBO show if they ever bring this back.
2: See, I remember hearing about modules. I didn't realize the modules were the sound guns.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an adaptation of female mysticism that's been turned into a male weapon. For me, the problem of the second half, on top of what you guys are talking about, is I just don't find the Fremen that interesting. They live in caves, it's a very dark, ugly world, and all of these actors just aren't very appealing, particularly Sean Young. I just feel like, I wouldn't want to hang out here. If this were my choice of survival, I might just go get eaten by a worm, because this is awful.
1: (laughs) Did more of her scenes get cut out of this than happened to her on Wall Street? Because I do not understand where this relationship comes from at all. (laughs) (laughs) No,
3: but I think, you know, when you cast Sean Young, you end up editing around Sean Young. I mean, (laughs) tell me of your homeworld, Usul. Oh, okay. I wonder how many takes it took to get that. She's not good and she's never good, but she worked as an android in Blade Runner. Her robotic style does work occasionally (laughs) in sci-fi, but certainly not here. For romance and love, for a movie that's trying to appeal to mass audiences, you really need to believe that these characters feel something. But, I mean, it's pointed out. And, Jacob, you've said you're not feeling anything. Paul, that comes from Paul himself. He says, where are my feelings? He said, yes, I know. I feel for <laughs> no one. And I think that's Lynch. I think in general, most of his movies are told in that style. I think that's transcendental meditation, which he's heavily influenced by. The idea that you go beyond your body, that you transcend the anguish and the feelings of your body are exactly what Lynch uses as tools to make his art. So I think that he's using this character to espouse that. And that's not something in the book. That's something Lynch is bringing to it.
2: And yet, if this is what you're using to sell me Transcendental Meditation, you're failing, because I I don't want any part of it. Like, I don't get what the appeal would be. I've studied Buddhism. I understand, you know, that whole Zen thing. But if I'm taking this film as a commercial for meditation, no, I I don't get Transcendental Meditation. I don't get why this is useful. But besides that, that funny, oh, by the way, there's a Messiah in this movie. There's a prophecy. One of the funniest things, I think, we're going to go into another, I guess, big battle that's going to go on for two years with weird editing but
1: gurney shows back up patrick stewart like he lived why did he go away and more importantly why did he come back
2: And why didn't he cut his hair? He's got like a bald-headed mullet going on.
3: Even I'm not entirely sure about this. I think what might have happened is that we saw him caught up in the battle. I think he ran out into the desert and wound up at a different tribe than the one that Paul ended up of Fremen.
1: I thought he was with the Harkonnen and Paul was killing the Harkonnen.
3: Yeah, that's
2: what I thought.
1: Uh, He could have been. But if you're with the
3: Harkonnen, they put a heart plug on you. So I didn't see that he had one of those. Maybe he did have one of those. But that was why I was confused about that. I thought it might be Harkonnen, and then I thought maybe he was just in a different area, but because we don't have Lawrence of Arabia telling us that Paul is uniting all these different tribes, then I honestly just can't tell you. It doesn't really seem to matter that much. He's separated from Gurney, they're reunited, and they he basically just needs to win everybody over, and what better way to do that than, yeah, to ride a worm, to just you know, that's where I think I always felt like the special effects kind of struggled right it's where the blue screening becomes the most evident when he's climbing up there and you know gets it like it's a harness or something you know he pokes in the ropes and yeah
2: It really does feel like Flash Gordon with that Toto soundtrack going. (laughs) It's reminding me of like the Hawkman or whatever, like as they're riding those worms. Like, yeah, it does get a real Flash Gordon vibe during these battle scenes,
1: not in a good way. The riding the worm could be completely awesome if they could have pulled it off, and ILM could have pulled it off, but whoever was doing these effects, be it budget. Or be it pure talent. Wait a minute. Are you
3: telling me there's only one person that could have done this? In 1984? In 1984?
1: Yes, I am telling you that.
3: I'm sorry. I saw Return of the Jedi. I saw that Ewok stuff. And they have bad blue screen in all of it. Not this bad. Yeah, this is as bad as that Uh, speeder chase in in, Endor. All
1: right, it's as bad as some of the stuff on Tatooine, but Endor's miles above this.
3: We'll agree to disagree, but I think you may be remembering the way that they got tweaked and not how it actually was in 84, if you think the special effects were so much better than what's being done here. These are great people working on these special effects, top of the industry.
2: I'll tell you, one of my favorite effects, and this may be a little weird, but, you know, as... We're going into this climax. If there's not enough characters, we're going to introduce a new one. Paul's mom, Jessica, drinks the water of life. She's pregnant (laughs) with this fetus. I love the shot of the fetus. Who can it be?
3: Yes. (laughs) I love Alia. She's my favorite, too. I
1: love her. Oh boy, that she weirds me out, and I dislike her actively.
3: Being weirded out yes. is what I want. So the yeah, she's awesome in how scary she is. Normally, you would think, oh my god, a little child, and she's supposed to beat up the Baron. I totally believe that he'd get his ass kicked by this scary little one. She is. The omen in all of that. I mean, she is the scariest of the scary children.
2: My brother is coming.
1: Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Yeah, the voice, the inflection. And that's totally not the actress's voice, right? I mean, that's bad lip syncing.
3: It's lip syncing. I mean, bad, I guess. If you think all lip syncing is bad, yeah,
1: it's... I don't think all is. I just think this didn't... It, It reminded me of the Clint Howard episode of Star Trek in the 60s where... You have a child and the adult and the child just couldn't get the pacing right of the words and so the lips don't match. And
3: But they're not doing that because they're unsatisfied with her. They're doing that because Lynch loves to play with sound and he realized how creepy it is to have that layered voice. If
2: you got a telepath that could shoot their thoughts around, I don't know. I, I go with the vibe of this. It doesn't need to match up. I do wonder, though, she takes on the Baron. You know, she. I guess her growth rate was accelerated because her mom drunk. The water of life like she was pregnant and you know it's been two years but now she's like eight
3: yeah it's like you know don't have a glass of wine
2: (laughs) yeah but i i do have to wonder why does the baron have a heart plug like it seems like he puts those into people so he could easily kill them but he's got one as well and she's gonna rip it out
1: he's got all of these pustules he has a doctor working on him like he's a fixer-upper car i'm not surprised that he needed something to plug up his heart
3: Yeah, and I think that's just the Harkonnen way. I guess he's somebody else's bitch at one point, and then he became who he is. But, yeah, the plug to me, I mean, I just love it as an idea of patriotism, of like, you're now mine, I have your heart, and I can pull it out at any time. But uh, his is pretty well protected. I, I don't feel like anybody would, else would be able to pull that away. But I, I also think that, you know, she has the Gom jabor. She has this, like, thimble, the same thing that was being held to Paul's neck when he put his hand in the box. She's got that as her weapon as well. She's becoming, she's accelerated. She's a really smart kid. She's becoming like the Reverend Mother, the Bene Gesserit, but at a much faster rate. And I don't know what she'll become, but I know that she does continue on in the Dune sequels.
2: And then we get, again, talking about those lynch cuts where it's like, oh, all of a sudden we're going to be at some other moment. Like, all the tribes, I guess, are in a room. Like, the Emperor, he's landed and he was part of that space battle. But now... I think they're doing a peace treaty. I don't know, because Fade's going to show up. Sting, remember, he's in this movie. He's going to show up to have a knife fight at the end for some reason.
1: This is completely out of the blue. I mean, I understand what Stuart said earlier, that he was being set up as a nemesis, but I didn't get it. I saw the Baron as the bad guy. So when you have this little girl with glowy blue eyes take out the Baron, what does that leave Paul to do? Okay, maybe go after the Emperor. Or the Emperors just going to sit there and watch... Well, Paul has a knife fight with Sting, who has done nothing except just, I guess, be sexy. He's appeared in Vision saying, I will kill you. <laughs> but yeah, he hasn't actually killed
3: anybody. And and really, it's his brother, Raban that's much scarier. He's the one that's like crushing things to drink and doing horrible things. He ends up being beheaded by the emperor. Yeah, the emperor took him out. So, yeah, maybe the least threatening Harkonnen is being the one foisted off on Paul. And I think that is unfortunate because it is supposed to be a significant doppelganger to Paul. But And, and the other thing that got cut from the scenes where he was hanging out with the Fremen was his first kill. I think there's a major knife fight in each part of Paul's evolution. At first, right before he goes to Arrakis, he fights that machine. In the second part, when he's out in the desert, there are people that don't want him to become a part of the cult. They don't believe he's a messiah. He's challenged by one of the leaders. He has to do a knife fight. He kills him. They filmed it. It wasn't that exciting and they cut it, but it would have shown Paul Uh, winning over the tribe because killing someone actually moves him to tears. He does have an emotion. He cries, and because water is so precious, they think that that's such a gesture that they make him their leader.
1: I did see that scene in the deleted scenes, and I was... I couldn't figure out even where it was supposed to go. The deleted scenes, I didn't know the movie well enough to even make sense of those.
2: But is water that precious? Because, I, again, I think Verhoeven saw this when he's doing Total Recall. Like, the Fremen have a bunch of water. It's like Mars is going to get its water again. They have reservoirs underneath the planet.
3: Yeah, Max von Sydow taught them that. We don't have any scenes to demonstrate that, but going for off of the book... Max von taught you how to use solar winds to make water. And so, yeah, they are slowly getting enough water to turn the planet green is their goal. But in true Lynch
2: fashion, we'll see Paul. He'll use his what voice that will crack the land and I guess cause rain. He's the hand of God at this
3: point. I mean, I don't know where he got this.
1: Did they need rain on Arrakis? I know they were hoarding water and they said at some point when they have enough water, they'll do something with it. But it's not like they were a starving people desperate to make crops. I don't know exactly what they ate or where they got their food. I think they just lived off their bio suits, right? The point is
3: that you have a messiah coming. He's got to do something that nobody else could do, right? And so Lynch chose a, a mystical option. He, and I think that's the right choice. You don't want to watch Star Wars and believe that the force is BS. That's just a way of tricking people. That it's midichlorians in your blood. <laughs> <laughs> Well put, exactly so. We don't want to see the mysticism cheapened. So, yeah, if Paul has, in fact, awakened the sleeper, what has awakened? What is so tremendous about him? Yeah, cracking the earth and bringing rain to a desert planet. Seems pretty impressive. I'd make him my leader.
2: And I'm trying to read into this. What does this mean? Because you control the spice, you control the universe. Is he destroying all the spice by turning Dune into a, a water world? Like, is it going to kill the worms? Like, what? what is... I, I'm trying to read something into this. I'm not sure if there's <laughs> anything to read, though. Like, is God destroying the universe here? Because Paul's God and he's destroyed the spice?
1: Jacob, you have me thinking about when it rains here and all the worms come out of the cracks and just kind of lay there dying <laughs> now. picture that whole planet.
3: Yeah, the poor worms are going (laughs) to (laughs) die. I have no answer for you because this was never a part of the book and this doesn't happen and it probably shouldn't happen if you're going to continue in the vein of the second book, but you know, I get the point of wanting to sell your hero. He hasn't done a whole lot. I mean, honestly, he's been uh, waiting to have his visions become real. We've seen him, you know, thinking about the moon and dripping water and all of these things.
2: Yeah, what is the deal with the second moon he keeps dreaming about? Like, I thought he was going to go to the moon, but we see it crumble just like we saw the man in the planet's planet crumble in I, uh,
3: You know, it, it was cut scenes would demonstrate that he had epiphanies at certain moments, and that moon is called Muadib. That's why he chooses oh. that name. And so it's why they give him that name.
2: I-, I was wondering if it was like some two thousand one, two thousand ten, the year we made contact thing going on where there was like maybe
3: new worms on that planet, new spice, who knows? No, but that movie was out at theaters at the same time and beating <laughs> it at the box office. <laughs> I think it's as simple as God brings rain, right? Something from heaven. So he's delivered something from the sky that they never thought they would see.
2: It just seemed weird though, because they had millions of gallons stored underneath the world. I <sighs>
3: No no, it's not about not having water, it's the idea idea that they may never need to harvest water again. They can waste it. They can go piss in the pool <laughs> because it's going to come
1: from the sky now. So Kallaxit can finally happen. It's rained.
3: See, and I thought...
2: Paul just somehow like used that water to cause the rain. I didn't get the sense that he was creating a new
3: source.
1: No, I knew he was creating the rain. I just didn't understand why or anything. It's like, okay, so the prophecy is fulfilled and you already captured the emperor. So are you, I mean, you're the emperor now and you could make it rain and you could do the weirding way without a box on your hand. And why do I care? And in a cut scene,
3: I'm gonna marry your daughter too. Virginia Madsen becomes his bride, thus making him the God Emperor, which is a title of a later book, but he will actually control the universe because he marries Irulan, which normally might piss off his actual lover, Sean Young. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that seems weird. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but keep in mind, it's a, it's a line of dialogue, but Duke Leto never married Jessica. That was his concubine. You marry for politics, you have your concubine for your lovin'. That's the way it works here. So
2: they're like the French.
3: Yeah, it is very European. It's probably why it didn't play. I'm sure we would have accepted everything else here in America, but the idea that he would have multiple wives was just too much. We stormed out of the theater. We tore up the, the glossary. We said, we can't accept
1: this movie. But can we take this? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Dune? Jacob
2: Look, I actually went into this with a very open mind, now being someone that understands David Lynch and having seen his films, is interested in seeing that aspect of it, just because it is such a a big film in the sci-fi community, and pop culture-wise, it's a movie that, despite being a flop, has made an impact, so I went in, okay, can I get into this even though I just wanted R2 and C-3PO when I was eight, or I fell asleep during those oil paintings when I tried to watch it before, and there's a... There's things I like here. The, the design I like. The, the costuming. the That weird alien that could fold time. The worms. There's a lot of neat visuals. And sometimes that matters a lot. And that can make a recommend. I think with Doctor Strange, a lot of that worked because of just all the trippy visuals for me. Here, though... Because they put so many damn words and names and tribes and kingdoms and planets in front of me, I get lost in that because I'm like, okay, why is this thing important? Why is that thing important? And now I got to try to make sense of all this. And I know this movie has a following. My sense is, if you're a fan of the book, you probably love this movie. I don't know if anyone who... Has never read that book, will love this movie because it, it's confusing. But I, I think the biggest problem is by the time I get to the end of this movie, I just realize I don't care about the outcome. Like, Paul never really wins me over, he's kind of bland. And what's the point of the end of this film? Like, I don't know, the the Emperor and the Artreates and the Fremen are all kind of hanging out, I guess. And they could go surf on the waves of Dune. I don't know what the point of it is. Like, I, I don't know what I was supposed to learn. And I get there's a lot of things referenced, religion and ecology and all those kind of things. I don't know if any of that plays into this film or plays into it to the amount that it should, that I feel like is kind of set up in the beginning. So for me, it's a frustrating film. Like like I said, I we're going to do a TV series next week. I, I'm actually open to that. I want to see a longer version of what Lynch could have done, because I think he could have made it something work. But what we have here as a two-hour and 17-minute film, it doesn't work for me. It's a not recommend.
1: Stewart.
3: When Lynch was doing the press junket, before anybody even saw the movie, he had to go out there and sell the movie and people were always asking him, you know, what's what's your pitch? And his answer was, the more familiar with the book you are, the more you'll like it. And I now realize, certainly listening to you guys, that's gotta be true here. If you don't have a base knowledge of the book and you're expecting a story, frustrations galore. That said, Lynch, this is a Lynch retrospective I want to put it out there. I don't think that he's big on selling a big overriding theme or a story. I think in most cases, story is incidental and in service and only partially there to allow him to have his style. And certainly on style points, this movie is tremendous. I think start to finish, I love looking, experiencing, seeing a Yeah, a vision that is unlike any other sci-fi movie I can think of, including Eraserhead. I'm going to go ahead and say it. This, so far, the series is my favorite of the three films. I actually have the most visceral response watching this movie. I just love almost every minute of it. Maybe some of those in the cave scenes I'm not crazy about but I just I totally dig this vibe and I think that Lynch is at the height of his powers he'll, he'll never have more money to do what he does here and it was grandiose to see that little Eraserhead movie blown up extra big so for me this is a, a tremendous experience but I also recognize I know a lot about the book And thus, some things that might really trip people up, I probably took as second nature. I didn't find this movie that confusing until maybe the last 30, 40 minutes. But again, if you're confused, that may not even be a bad thing if you can get into the Lynch vibe. I am the Lynch fan, so I think it's easiest for me to do that. And I give it a solid recommend.
1: I watched this movie, and as I mentioned, I didn't understand everything that was happening, but I got the gist of it. Stuart, I don't even get the gist of... How you could consider this the best of the films we've seen thus far. But again, I haven't read the books. And that must be the chasm I can't bridge is having not read the books. Because to me, I think Elephant Man is going to remain one of the best in this entire series as we go through Lynch's stuff. Not the best. I know there's at least two things we're going to cover that I like better. Maybe three. But that's an amazing piece of cinema. And this is... A failure it's a failure of storytelling it's a fail it's visually interesting but it's over long for just a visual set piece I mean if you want a music video you don't want it to last for two hours and 15 minutes and you sure as hell don't want a music by Toto and if you want a story this is not going to give it to you I believe this to be the worst film we're going to be covering in the entire Lynch retrospective you
3: are wrong <laughs> you are
2: very very wrong <laughs> If this is the worst film, then I'm looking forward to this retrospective.
3: I know that there's a worst film, and I've never met a person who's
1: disagreed with me. I haven't seen all of Lynch's films, but I find it hard to believe that there'd be worse than this.
2: So this is worse than Eraserhead for you?
1: Absolutely, because Eraserhead...
2: Wow, because you hated that film. Like, you never wanted to do that film on the podcast.
1: I found that to be... Like I had mentioned, like that chair display at the Museum of Modern Art, but I at least recognized it as modern art, whereas this, I don't even think lives up to that moniker. You can't have art when it's a sellout. If you took that exact same display of chairs that they considered art at Museum of Modern Art and instead used folding chairs from Walmart, that's what you have here.
2: I was going to say, this is the security guard's (laughs) chair that you can tell the difference between the two.
1: See, the difference is I could tell the folding chairs from Walmart as being different. (laughs) In an attempt to be commercial, this is utterly artistically bankrupt and narratively obnoxious it's a strong not recommend but yet i'll give it this it's so malformed that it has forever left me curious what the hell were they trying to tell me and so because of that i almost watched the dune miniseries when it came out on sci-fi but it was the sci-fi channel and we've reviewed some of their shit before and it is shit oh
2: it's a sci-fi movie oh yeah oh Is there a sharktopus in it?
3: Yeah, that's what, I mean, to be fair, I I haven't seen it. I just want to put it out there. I've never seen it, never even thought I wanted to see it. But not all sci-fi is created equal. Uh, Usually it's all not good. I (laughs) I can't say it's pretty uniformly not good. But there's the real schlock, and then there's the kind of like dry stuff that they do that they don't have enough money. And it just, it's just not working in the way that a theatrical science fiction film does. I've seen some of that as well. And I suspect it might be like that.
1: I'll applaud them when they do Mega Gator versus Sharktopus because they know what they're doing there. But I'm looking at the stuff we've done, which is two Return of the Living Dead films.
3: Well, they bought that,
1: though. That's not even fair. They bought that at a market. They didn't make that. I don't know if they made this, Dune or bought it. But so much that they premiere is stuff they can't find any place else that act because of how bad it is. The Necropolis, uh, Return of the Living Dead. The Firestarter, Rekindled. The Prime Directive's Robocop.
2: Is this before or after the rebranding where they started using Ys?
1: Oh, way before. That only happened a couple years ago.
2: That gives me a little more hope
1: then. Yeah, there was no Y in sci-fi. There still isn't. Except on their (laughs) name, which is dumb, but they have cooking shows now, so whatever. Wow. (laughs) But uh, you know what? I do believe, as a fan of that book... That just because
3: I liked what Lynch did with it, that's definitive. I do believe that there is a better version of this story to be made for the screen. And I hope they can pull it off. A mini series seems like the venue to pull it off. That they have, I think, three nights to do this. I think this is going to be close to a five-hour thing we're going to get. Yeah, I'm game. I'll be watching the... The letterbox theatrical version, they call it. Director's cut, I think, as well as the original TV format. I'll be watching it twice.
1: I only have the director's cuts, but I don't envy anyone who has to watch a miniseries twice in one week. Different (laughs) cuts or no. I'm breaking it up overnight. (laughs) But yes, that is what will be out for the next two weeks because we're really building up to Rogue One to talk about Lucas, to talk about Star Wars.
2: Yeah, we should say Lynch is not involved at all with the TV series or with the Children of Dune that we'll be covering.
1: No, no, it's all going back to Frank Herbert.
3: Yeah, we've said this isn't Star Wars, but we're using it to lead up to Star Wars. Yeah, we're stepping away from the Lynch franchise and just doing something tangential. We'll be doing that again with Wild at Heart as well. Uh, Sometimes Lynch leaves a franchise and other people's Take the mantle, and that's what the next two weeks are with
1: Frank Herbert's Dune, as it's called, and Children of Dune. And then, yeah, Rogue One. And this Friday, if you want to just have some utter weirdness that I do enjoy, it's got crazy transforming humans, it's got trippy imagery, it's got kinky sex. I think maybe there's a lot in common between Dune and from Beyond, Stuart Gordon's follow-up to Reanimator.
3: Yeah, it's checking off all my boxes. I've been a fan of it for a long time, and yeah, I look forward to going back. Uh, it's it's the one I know better than Reanimator. So yeah, we'll be talking about that, and then Platinum will be going on to the Reanimator trilogy. That is right. I've been
1: watching a lot of cuts of Reanimator. There's at least three, so there's quite a bit there. That will be next Friday, going for three weeks. Our donation drive is coming to a close, so if you want a chance to get these podcasts. During this drive, please hurry and help out our show. Head to NowPlayingPodcast.com forward slash donate. Click the banner at the top. You can donate $10 and get the five fly reviews we've put out. $25. You get these eight horror of 86 films, which are The Hitcher, House, Chopping Mall, April Fool's Day, Vamp, Deadly Friend, Trick or Treat, and This Week From Beyond, so 13 total podcasts for $25 or more. And then for $35 or more, you also get the Reanimator trilogy and the remake. What are they doing? We're not quite sure, but there will be another Reanimator film. And when it comes out, you'll get that too. So we'll discuss that more in the Reanimator series. But keep in mind, if you go $25. That is less than $2 per bonus podcast, but really we're asking you to donate for the show we do every week. So if you look at, we put out at least 55 shows for free on the main feed every year, and then these bonus shows as well. It's far cheaper than an audiobook from Audible, far cheaper then, if you bought an hour's worth of songs from iTunes, we're looking at about 50 to 75 cents per show or less. So, please help support our show. We would greatly appreciate it. And, Stuart Jacob, thank you for joining me. And we'll be back next week because the podcast must flow.
2: The sea. But a person needs new experiences. They jar something deep inside, allowing him to grow. Without change, something sleeps
1: inside us
2: and seldom awakens. The sleeper must awaken.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Dune Movie Retrospective Series, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Will we ever have peace, More deep? We'll have victory. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Stewart's reviews and analysis of Frank Herbert's original Dune novels. I thought of many pleasures with you. Come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other films such as Blade Runner, Ocean's Eleven, The Shining, the James Bond films, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at NowPlayingPodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review.
3: This place is changing me. It's the spice. It's in the air we breathe, in the food we eat. I can't escape it.
0: Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com forward slash book, You can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen. But you should. Whatever the need, we have the breed. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums, where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The link to our forums is at NowPlayingPodcast.com.
3: Come, Paul. Men are waiting. Me? Right now? It's time you participated. The time of plots and revenge is coming to an end.
0: Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating.
3: Health and long life
2: are the gifts of the spice.
0: You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com.
2: I've seen how they (laughs)
0: die. I'm dead to everyone unless I try to become what I may be. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Remember, one thing to gain control of your perceptions quite another, to gain control of your desires. And if I succeed? You'll find reality to be quite a bit different than you thought. Now Playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho. He is a natural leader, like his father. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. What's in the box? Pain. The pain! No! Enough! No woman, child, ever withstood that much. Now playing credit narration by Brock. The voice from the outer world bringing the holy war The she had. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. The first
3: step in avoiding a trap is knowing of its existence.
0: The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Some thoughts have a certain sound. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016. All rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.
2: Be sure he recalls his flimsy denials when he's face-to-face with Death's sweet smile.
0: The saga of Dune is far from over.
1: Starring. The f*** kind of cast list is that? It's alphabetical.
2: Alphabetical? That's how they did it in the credits, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, it is. It's alphabetical by last name. I'm yep. like, Brad Dourif is not going to be the third name I f- say. I'm not even going to say Brad Dourif's name. Starring. Motherf***ing. They're all alphabetical. Yeah, no, that's how it's done in the end credits. It says that. Yeah. You want? Do you want me
3: to feed you lines and you can just cut it me out? Here, no.
1: I got it. I I suppose the person who benefited most on this when I was doing some research is probably Steven Spielberg, because the same week that Dune opened, it was number two. Beverly Hills Cop in its second week was still number one. I mean, that thing was a juggernaut. But Steven Spielberg's 1984 also opened that week. So who? He kind of got a pass. Steven Spielberg? Oh. Is that what you're saying? I got, I got 1942 confused with 1984. Fork. Cut that whole thing. Yeah, I'm like, Spielberg had no
3: involvement <laughs> in 84. Yeah. All
1: right, cut the whole thing.
2: Oh my, I just looked up that space worm toy. Wow. Yeah.
3: No,
1: it's a big dick. <laughs> it's a dildo.
2: That you could put yours in in one end, it looks like. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, but that's the thing is I was thinking fleshlight because it, when it opens up, it kind of is vaginal. It's a little vagina dentata.
2: Wow. They they made the spice
1: harvesters and everything. Man, they really were. Yeah, they were aiming big. These came out, didn't they? I've seen some of these figures on clearance. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at catalog
2: pictures of it, so I'm assuming they came out.
1: There was eight people that they picked out for the action figures,
3: and a lot of the cars and the guns and all that stuff.
2: That Fat Baron had to be a big seller.
3: Oh my god, the <laughs> figures are
1: worth a lot now. Uh, yeah, oh, I'm sure they are. They're probably very rare.
3: Of course, you know, like anything rare that's become a cult item. Base for this film, and Universal Pictures did ultimately release the expanded cult. The uh, cult.
1: Led by the popular Duke Le- Duke, popular, led by the popular Duke Leto, uh, led by the popular Duke Leto Atreides, led by the popular- You're going to
2: feel like such an asshole <laughs> saying all these names, just like <laughs> Lord of the Rings.
1: It's Leto if you really want to get geeky, but it's, yeah. Leto, okay. I was thinking Jared Leto, Jared Leto, how the fuck do you pronounce it? Uh, who plays him? Uh, Jürgen Prochnow. Okay. It is led by the popular Duke Leto Atreides, played by Jürgen Prochnow. <laughs>
3: I know there's so many syllables.
1: Oh, I actually said it right. I was like "pranch." Now, yeah, no, you did it. <laughs> I would have corrected you. It's
3: more. I mean, it's an Americanized, but I'm not German. I can't say it correctly.
1: Yeah, it's probably something screamed. All right. More, the Spacing Guild is concerned about the Duke's son Paul, played by Kyle McLaughlin. You know that guy who you've seen on Agents of Shield? Him. He's
3: on Agents of Shield? Yeah. I didn't know that.
1: What's his superpower? Is he possessed by an evil owl? He can make all his cachet from Twin Peaks disappear. <laughs> He's Daisy's mysterious father from season two. Who, when they
2: I don't know who Daisy is.
1: <laughs> Moving on though. She was previously known as Sky, and now she's known as Quake. Anyway.
2: Yep. No idea. And so for me, yeah, you could do something visual that's weird and confusing. And look, this is a film. I call it Spice World, which I I guess that's a different movie. But it's going to be a movie about tripping on drugs and traveling through space. And yes.
1: So they're the same movie, pretty much.
2: I haven't seen Spice World, so to be (laughs) determined.
1: (laughs) Oh, I have. There's not a drug good enough to make that work. (laughs) Maybe someday we'll spice up your life, Jacob.
2: Looking forward to it. (laughs)